week and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you're one of our geeks in sneaks, using this podcast to power you through a workout or a run. Don't you worry. We got your back. We're going to be in your ear holes for 90 plus minutes with gaming goodness because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be completely free and that's because of our sponsor this week squarespace squarespace they made that possible bringing the show to you dlc of course the show all about games and there are many forms games played on desktops laptops and consoles and also games that involve dice luck and cardboard i am your host jeff canada that's spelled with two n's and one t and i am joined as always by my friend slash co-host Slash nemesis. <laughs> the guy who also couldn't make it work with Chris Pratt, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. I was, I, I still am wearing it because I changed before I went out for a show last night, but I'm wearing my Star Lord Guardians shirt. And when I found that out, I was like, Star Lord, you betrayed us all. There's no love in the world. There's no love. There's how, how are any of us supposed to be able to make it if Anna Ferris and Chris Pratt can't make it? We did Department of Parenting episodes about them, Chris Quintos and I. They had some great red carpet interviews and banter. They seemed like, but you know what? Life goes on and uh, neither here nor there. Another thing. I'm, sure, I'm not sure life does go on, Christian. Oh, blah, sure oh, blah, da. It does. I've, I've listened to the song. I want to all say right. something else up top, too. Uh, and I, I'm sorry for springing this on both of you. Um, uh, I have seen the tweets and information and gaff and stuff like that about Nick Robinson. I don't know anything about it, and we're not going to talk about it on this show. It's not video game related, and I just don't want to get into any of that stuff. It kind of is, but yes, we're not going to talk about it. He's been a guest on the show before, and um, yeah, uh, ye- weird to bring it up. But yes, um, I-, I understand meaning to acknowledge it, I suppose, but uh, certainly don't know enough about it, to be honest, to make a real Exactly. Okay. Um, you're right that life does go on in a prattless, Ferrisless world. Uh, and, and video games are still coming out. News is still hitting. We got a lot to talk about. I, of course, talk about games every single day on Newest, Latest, Best. I hope those of you that listen to this show will give that show a shot. It is available as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for Newest, Latest, Best. You'll find it. Give it a shot. Uh, But we have a big show for you today here on DLC, and we have an awesome guest to do it with. You know that DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian, but this week we are excited because DLC stands for Dig, List, and Curate, because that's what you do on Sifted. And we've got the founder of Sifted.net, Mr. Shane Satterfield. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, and thank you for that uh, generous introduction. I I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, man, love the site. It's really really cool. That's s i f t d dot net, right? Yep, that's it. And you guys uh, do lots of content. It's all curated. It's a it's a really cool concept that you've been running with for a while now. Yeah, the site's been up for about two years. Uh, I basically created a site that I wanted to use as an older person who doesn't have the. Uh, expendable time to engage with games the way I wanted to. I wanted to create a site for people who are running short on free time but want to engage with games on the same level they always have. So, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, I use Twitter or other social media to uh, get my game news, but that wasn't working for me because in with all the good stuff is a lot of stuff I don't care about. So 
I created a site where people could tell us what they care about, and then we go out and find all the best content, and we deliver each user a custom feed of content based upon exactly what they want and what they care about. So, uh, yeah, we've been up for about two years now. We do original content. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're something different, which is kind of hard to say in the uh, digital landscape these days. So Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you. We're old friends from the old weekend confirmed days. It's been too long since we've talked, so glad to finally get you on the show. Uh, and let's start the show the way we always do with Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happen in the world of games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration by visiting our subreddit. It's a great place to hang out with like-minded folks, people who listen to the show, talk about what we talk about or bring up new things for us to talk about. You can find that at 5x5dlc.reddit.com. And, uh, you know, it's not a huge week of news, but there's some interesting stuff. And Shane, since you are our guest, you get first pick of stories. So what would you consider to be your story of the week? Oh, man, I don't want to go back too far because uh, most of that stuff has been told from last week. You guys are in a unique position here on Monday. You got to uh, sift through, haha, uh, the stuff from the last week and still make the show relevant. Um, man, I guess... My biggest story, and I think probably the story that will generate the best conversation, is uh, the announcement that today that Shadow of War is getting loot chests. Um, loot chests typically are a very polarizing topic, but generally, at least from my perspective, I, I tend to direct my ire more towards games that uh, that use it in multiplayer, where a player might get an added advantage, as, as some people like to say, pay to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are kind of up in arms uh, about this with... Uh, Shadow of War, but considering it's primarily a single-player game, I, I'm, I'm kind of having problems seeing the outrage over this. Well, I think maybe it comes from the fact that you're paying $60 for a single-player experience, and then if you want extra stuff... And, you know, we've, for a long time, we've had had uh, microtransactions in games. You want extra stuff, we'll sell it to you bit by bit. You want that horse armor, we'll give you that horse armor, just pay for it. We've had that. That's been around for a decade, right? But... Yeah. The new trend here, which I think is clearly taking over the entire gaming landscape, is you don't buy the horse armor, you buy a chance at the horse armor. Right. Yeah. You want that horse armor? Maybe it's in a loot box, maybe it's not. Keep buying loot boxes until you get that horse armor you want. Sure hope that it's the best one, sure hope it's the rare one. Keep buying them. Now, of course, uh, Shadow of War, like most other games that use loot boxes... Uh, allows you to buy them with in-game currency as well. So it's it's not requiring you to spend extra money, more than $60 to get this kind of stuff. But you certainly can. You can buy gold in the game for money and then use that gold to buy loot chests. So they certainly uh, open the doors to to that kind of thing. And we're seeing loot crates, loot boxes, loot chests in everything. Yeah, they're everywhere. I think this is the uh, the trickle down of of Hearthstone's massive success. And it, and it makes sense in a, in a card game, right? That's the whole point is buy decks and open them and see what you get inside. But now it's in Overwatch and it's in uh, Fortnite and it's in, you know, every single game. And here we are putting it in a primarily single player experience. So I've been talking about this a lot on Newest Latest Best this week as well. I'm conflicted because I get that little 
tingle in my pleasure center of opening a loot chest. It's fun. It's cool yeah. to pull the, the the lever and see what pops out of your little pinata. That's a pleasurable act, and it's fun. And almost every game that I play that has them, I don't spend real money for them. I just buy it using in-game currency. So no harm, no foul in a sense because I'm actually getting some joy out of seeing what happens. But the fact that this is is permeating into so many games, it's starting to feel a little dirty because I know at my heart that it is a psychological manipulator. It is something that's meant to, to tickle my pleasure center. And it's meant for me to be addicted to that outcome, to, the, to pulling that lever and make me want to do it more and more. So I feel very conflicted about this. I think the secret sauce, though, is, is kind of what you said. Can you earn it? via playing the game and then to sort of extrapolate on that how much do you have to play to get it in the game through gameplay um it's a slippery slope that developers have to walk and some games get it right some games don't uh i don't know if you guys have been playing Fortnite at all i have a ton yeah i'll talk about it later but yes yeah i I don't want to get into it too much because i think we are going to talk about the game later but uh the one thing I would say about Fortnite, especially when you're paying $40 for a game that's going to eventually be free, I think the developers maybe overcompensated a little bit with the loot for the people who are paying for the game. Right. Because there are certain points where you get so much loot in that game that you literally sit there for like three minutes waiting for all the loot to come in once you finished a mission. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's the way it's going to be when it turns free to play uh, next year. But I think that's kind of an example of almost overkill. It's because, like you were talking about, the dopamine rush that you get when... And then you said pinata. And literally, in Fortnite, they're pinatas. They're llama pinatas that you hit with a melee weapon to crack them open. And there's something um, really fun about that. Like, there I, is. I, I, there's I no doubt about it. it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you get that dopamine rush. Your brain just releases that little rush of, oh my gosh. But with this game, Fortnite in particular, it's like... it, it It's overkill. And it, it kind of diminishes the... Uh, the rush that you get from it. So it's a very, I'm sure there are spreadsheets and data charts and things like that, that these developers have that they work from as far as studies that they've done to see what's sort of the, the sweet spot for giving that stuff up. But uh, it is a tough thing to manage. And uh, a lot of times when you hear stories like this, like with shadow of war, it's hard to pass too much of a judgment on it until you actually see it in practice to see how it's handled. What do you think about this Christian? I agree with Shane. You got, you, I mean, it is kind of let's wait and see and hopefully they can strike that balance. I do think that maybe this is just anecdotally. I don't have the hard facts for it, but I feel as if, uh, Warner Brothers is pretty awful in this regard. Yeah. <laughs> they load their games with this kind of thing and different currencies and cosmetic. Justice 2 is another example. Yeah. Yeah. Great game. And there you, you're only spending money for cosmetic stuff and you can unlock, uh, whatever, like the diamond, whatever the, uh, currency you need to get the premium skins in game but it's you know rough math like 20 hours of gameplay for one (laughs) of those skins or like two dollars or whatever it is um and i'm curious how i I think in addition to having it uh be doled out appropriately in terms of not getting too many or too few loot boxes in a single player game with xp coming is it going to feel like i'm stuck in one fort uh, in, Shad- in Shadow of War and can't beat it. But I'm like, ah, oh, because if I could just get to that next thing in my skill tree, then I'll have the invisible five arrow multi-shot. Oh, and that's, it's, it's a dollar. I can buy that. Or I could go grind for an hour. Like that seems extra devious to me in a way well, that I'm nervous about. Let's play like Candy Crush. <laughs> that's what Candy Crush does. It puts you in a position where you can't proceed and it says, hey, spend a dollar. 
And a lot of people will. Well, let's be real explicit with what they're doing in Shadow of War. So there's two different kinds of loot chests. There are war chests and there are – oh, I guess loot and war are the two kinds of chests. Loot chests contain gear, weapons and armor of varying rarities. And they can also contain XP boosts that you can buy individually. Uh, War chests provide orc followers of varying rarities and training orders to help you level up your orc followers. So – We've talked a lot about multiplayer games like Heroes of the Storm, Overwatch, uh, these games that really limit the stuff that you get in loot boxes to cosmetic items because they don't want to be, as Shane said, pay to win. They very much, you know, keep a walled garden of what you can get in loot boxes and it's all cosmetic. It's all non-affecting of gameplay. Now we get these single player games where that is not the case at all because it doesn't there's no competition there's no feeling bad cuz your buddy you know is is paid more and is beating you or your opponent so i feel like there's this sort of uh the floodgates are open a bit on single player games to just make it be hey the powerful stuff is locked behind the the loot chest wall and now it can be pay to win because there's nobody you're hurting in that sense uh, yeah i think from my perspective it, it, you know i don't really care what people do with in single player it's like it's just like i don't care what people do when they go home at night it's not my business what they do as long as it's not affecting me or hurting somebody else i don't really care what happens uh, in single player stays in single player exactly that's a good way to put it and uh but it can affect you it can totally affect how you play the game or how they like imagine if in breath of the wild or whatever pick your favorite single player game but they've changed that grind a little bit to make that grind a little bit harder. And then they've priced the loot boxes a little bit cheaper. And then instead of having this great gameplay experience, you're sitting there wondering if they're hiding something behind a paywall to try to extract more money from you. And that's why you can't beat this boss. So really, but I think that kind of goes back to the heart too, of like difficulty settings. I mean, you know, do you, do you, what about the easy difficulty setting in a lot of games? You know, a lot of people can walk through a game without, you know, much struggle at all if they just put it on easy. And I don't care, you know, to me, as long as somebody is enjoying the time that they spend with the game and are engaged with, uh, with the hobby and are motivated to keep contributing to the, to the hobby so that people like us can stay employed and all the developers can keep creating great games. Uh, I'm cool with it. It's like, you know, you're right. There is a, a slippery slope there as far as the developers kind of putting players in this position of, oh, well, we can create this sort of throttle here at this point in the game and make it really difficult to try to get people uh, to spend money on it. But that's where we come in. That's where the critics come in. And we're the ones who need to stand up and say, hey, this is going on with this game. We need to be honest and let people know before they buy the game. And for most most publishers, we're still getting games early. Uh, to evaluate before they come out. You know, Bethesda <laughs> is the exception there. But, uh, you know, it's our job to let consumers know that, you know, there are nefarious practices going on here as far as uh, how they're gating their difficulty and then how they're pricing uh, their uh, their ability enhancing uh, DLC, as it were. And I think the other rub with it, too, is that with this game specifically, Shadow of War, there is sort of a multiplayer component. You're able to go into other people's games. Um, and I think they've done a pretty good job as far as like the rewards that you get maybe don't tie into uh, the DLC that you can pay for. It may help you maybe get through the challenges in someone else's instance, um, but it's not necessarily affecting the person who is hosting that instance. Um, so for me, you know, 
Single player, to me, I, I don't have a big issue with this stuff for single player. To me, the only real advantage comes for people who maybe stream um, and make their living playing games for other people, and it could make it easier for them in some ways and maybe give them a leg up on other streamers who maybe get stuck uh, at that particular uh, choke point. Um, but otherwise, I don't really have a huge issue with single player, as long as it's handled at least slightly deftly, I guess. There's a lot of discussion going on in our chat room about this really interesting stuff. Uh, really interested in this comment from K-Pops. He says, uh, this raises a legal question. Would it be wrong to use a cheat engine on the PC version of Shadow of War to simply give yourself what these loot boxes offer? What do you think, hmm. Christian? I'm not a lawyer. I do not provide legal advice. Um, <laughs> it depends on what that cheat engine is doing. If the cheat engine is, in my unprofessional legal opinion, if that cheat engine is running a bot or something that is cracking these um, bot chests, then yes. If it is running something that is having you swing a sword a hundred times, and each time you swing a sword, you're getting one XP, and that XP is you know used whatever whatever, then I would argue no. Okay. I say, you know, do whatever you want in single player. I, I'm kind of on Shane's page with this, but it's well, no, a, it, but not not in the legality question. Not do whatever you want. Like that's like saying if there's DLC on the disc, quote unquote, but you can run a cheat engine to unlock it, and you don't have to buy it for fifteen dollars. You're stealing it. That's stealing. Well, but oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, this is a little different in the sense that you could theoretically just unlock this. It, this is more like if you you know get Forza and you want to unlock all the cars and by hacking it. Should you be able to do that? Like theoretically, I could play and unlock all the cars, or I could download this cheat code that hacks the game and lets me play all the cars right out of the box. Yeah, and it depends on what that cheat code is doing. That's, that's like if you're if that cheat code is going into the the Xbox Store and giving you downloads and you're stealing, and if it's fooling it to think that you did ten hundred meter drifts, then it's <laughs> it's probably not stealing. And I think too that uh, ultimately. It'll come out in the wash because players and consumers will vote with their dollars. We say it all the time, you know, vote with your money. And because, you know, particularly with Warner Brothers, we get their games in plenty of time to kind of get, get the word out there before the games are released. And as long as we're honest and we share with our uh, our listeners or viewers uh, what each game kind of brings to the table in that regard, um, they're prepared. They're going to know whether uh, it's really cheap and nasty or whether they handle it really well. And then it's up to the consumers to bet with their dollars. And if it's nefarious and warner brothers is doing something shady then you know people aren't going to pay for it and it will change warner brothers behavior and going forward hopefully although you you know you did mention that its reputation isn't the best but you know logically it will change warner brothers behavior and if it doesn't at least patch in changes to the existing game hopefully on down the road it changes how they handle future releases i don't like being cynical but I think if we're betting on bet with your dollar, I'm going to bet that loot boxes make them lots of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm betting. I don't and think that's, that's being cynical. I think that's just being honest. I mean, I, that's the I, truth. I think it really comes down to the fact that it's designed to be a pleasurable thing. And I, I that's what I worry about is that these tactics are sociologically crafted to work. And it's it's all, I'm not saying it's beyond my control. Certainly I have control, but it is weighted against me. It is it is using my own human uh, tendencies against me, and I have it, it, I have to work hard not to want that stuff. So it's, that's what feels dirty to me about it all. 
Anyway, but that's not just Warner Brothers. That's everybody. No, it's true, and that's what that's my that's my problem is that it's happening yeah. across the entire. This is going to be the norm instead of the the exception. This isn't like oh, a cool free to play game is doing it. It's like oh, every game does this. Yeah. So, uh, Christian, what's your story of the week? Well, this is a feel good story, so we can move out of that um, sad part and get into something that feels better. A M. Two R, the Metroid Two fan made port. The developer got hired by Moon Studios, who you might know as the people behind Ori in the Blind Forest, and now the sequel Ori in the Will of the Wisps. And he has been hired to work on level design. This, to me, is awesome. Well, you should point out that this that that Metroid port that he worked on, you can't play because well, you, you got yeah. Legally, down. you can. I mean, legally, you can't. Right. It's in a Dark, loot box. Some of us have it. It's inside a loot box in Shadow of War right now. Right. May or may not have that game. Yeah. Right. Keep, keep opening loot boxes. You may find it. Um, yeah. It's not the most the most feel good story is Nintendo brought him in house and worked on Metroid something or whatever or, or let this game come into existence. This is the next best. This is the cousin of the best feel good story. Right. So just to be clear, kid made. Uh, illegal Metroid game and Re- really told, good, allegedly yeah, really, really good. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and was told no, you can't even let people play. He wasn't even charging for it, right? He was just giving it away. And oh, Nintendo yeah. said you can't even give it away. No one can play it. Don't take it down. And uh, it turned out that all of the attention that he got from making it actually resulted in a job in the in the games industry. So yeah, I think feel good. But I hate to have a but uh, because I do think this is cool. This is like, hey, your hard work actually got you noticed. But doesn't it – there's a part of me that feels like it sends the wrong message. It's like, hey, m- make the biggest PR splash you can by infringing on a copyright so that everyone's talking about it. I guess if it hadn't have been a, if it hadn't been excellent, it wouldn't have worked. And it's the excellent part that really made it work. But also if he had made this cool indie game that – wasn't based on an IP that caused a big PR thing. Maybe nobody would have heard of this guy and he wouldn't have gotten any attention. Well, I think the irony too, is that Nintendo is particularly litigious. And, you know, if you're a indie developer out there and maybe you're trying to get a paid gig and you're thinking about, okay, what can I do to draw attention to my talents? And you say, okay, well I can, create some crazy mod for some popular game and you start thinking about, okay, which popular game should I go for? If you're smart, you're going to go for Nintendo because what's going to happen is, is provided you're skilled and you, and you end up doing a good job on it, you're going to get run through the news because Nintendo will undoubtedly take it down. It always does and it probably always will into infinity. So Nintendo almost becomes a mark in this case <laughs> where... If the smart indie developer is like, hey, like if I'm going to work on something, probably for no financial gain whatsoever, if, except in the long run, if I get a job, I'm going to pluck one of Nintendo's games because undoubtedly Nintendo's going to take it down. It's going to get run across all the sites and blogs and it's going to get a lot of attention. So that's my that's I feel like the the kid who plays by the rules and it, and created his own game and made you know toiled away and made his cool little indie game that no one will ever hear of and you know he labors in obscurity because he didn't break the rules and do the thing that caused the big corporation to get mad i, I, I don't know i mean my i've started a movie review youtube channel called jeff canada reviews movies and it has been a, a, a success so <laughs> you know the best part of that 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 <laughs> the best part of that uh 
YouTube channel is that there's no actual Jeff Kanata. That's people want <laughs> Jeff Kanata movie reviews without the actual Jeff Kanata. And that's really what you, that's the niche you have found. Well, actually, I just use uh, it's just Nathan Drake running around Uncharted Four, <laughs> and then I I dub in I dub in I can do a pretty good Jeff Kanata, so I just dub in my voice. But it's a it's a hit, and it's it's Jeff reviews movies while playing Nintendo games. Like there's always Nintendo music in the background. <laughs> it's just you know I, I still think that reviewing movies too. It's like this movie isn't very good. It's just a <laughs> reset of another song. No, this episode now. Now this podcast episode has been flagged. Sorry, Shane. This episode's over. We're done. <laughs> Think of all the PR we're gonna get from. <laughs> so you're employing the same tactics now. <laughs> you know, I still think this is a feel good story though, because you know you mention a lot of the the bedroom developers or the basement developers who are busting their butts, and I think it does kind of at least, even if it's not the ideal way, it does provide a glimmer of hope for some of these people that uh, their work can get noticed. And uh, that ultimately they can turn it into a paying profession instead of just a hobby. So, you know, I think so, with anything, there's always positives and negatives. But I think overall, when you look at this, it, it works out to an overall good. Uh, and I think it encourages a lot of people to uh, keep working on any projects that they're working on uh, and hopefully not try to uh, go after Nintendo every time. But uh, maybe I just laid out the blueprint for everyone to become a successful <laughs> bedroom developer to a paid developer. But uh, I think overall, this story does make me feel good. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. It's it's great that this kid got got a job and you know kudos to him his hard work paid off uh, w matthew in the chat says that so many game devs got into this career by modding games nothing new jeff obviously but this is not a game mod this is not that this is not taking a game and altering it and creating a new level or doing a total conversion this is making a game from whole cloth that is somebody else's ip and that is a i think it's a distinction that should not be overlooked it's not that's not what this guy did he didn't just mod a game so yeah this isn't some guy just creating new maps for a multiplayer shooter or you know putting like solid snake into fallout 4 which is something that we just saw from a mod today actually yeah. <laughs> so you're right and but i think also you know at the end of the day it comes out in the wash because either you have the skills or you don't and the bottom line is this guy is really good at what he does so you know, you can try to take the easy way out and say, oh, I'll target Nintendo's games. But ultimately, if you're not good, it's not going to matter. So that's kind of the caveat with this is the reason this guy got run across all the blogs and sites is because the game was really freaking good. Yeah. And he was also really smart in that he jumped the gun on Nintendo and recreated Metroid 2, which was something people have been asking for forever. And then, surprise, surprise, at E3, we get Nintendo's re remake of Metroid 2. So... Um, it was just kind of the perfect storm for this guy, but ultimately he's really talented and he knows what he's doing. And I think that's really why he got the gig, not just because he targeted Metroid 2. I think it's going to be really cool when at the end of the next Ori game, Ori ticks off her head and it's a girl underneath. What? <laughs> nice. Um, it's actually, it's actually Samus underneath. And they're like, gotcha, Nintendo. <laughs> uh, that game is not very good. Anyway, um, my story of the week, I want to talk about uh, Steam because Valve has been very cagey in the last several years with... Cagey, cagey, cagey. With uh, releasing any kind of information about numbers for, for Steam. And uh, this week at this uh, Casual Connect event in Seattle, they got on stage. Uh, Valve's Tom Giardino got on stage and said... 
that Steam has added 27 million first-time purchasers since January 2016. Crazy. Wow. Wow. They say that the service is averaging 14 million peak concurrent daily users, which is up from 8.4 million in 2015. And that is a 60% of that is in North America and Europe. Uh, Asia only accounts for a 17%. This is massive. Uh, You know, we're all on this show today. We are all old enough to remember people saying PC gaming is dead over and over and over. That was called Weekend Confirmed. That was a podcast called Weekend Confirmed. (laughs) We were all part of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a cyclical thing, right? PC gaming is dead happens every now and again. PC gaming clearly is thriving. That is an incredible number of people. Uh, this is uh, 67 million uh, monthly users on Steam compared to Xbox Live's 53 million, which is pretty darn good. So I think uh, I just wanted to bring this up. I'm a fan of PC gaming, always have been, and I love the fact that Steam is doing so very well and we finally get some you know real hard data to that effect. Well, and they haven't tapped the biggest continent yet. Right. Like that's where their smallest percentage is, is where all of the people live. And certainly they have their own um, gaming industry and online services and, you know, MMOs and whatever. Like gaming is already very huge in Asia and, and, and other places that don't rely on Steam. But if they can find a way to integrate Steam into all of that stuff, like if you're looking, if someone was like, I got this extra five million dollars and somehow I could invest it in Steam. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, I mean, I just wish Valve would start reinvesting some of its money into game development. I mean, wait, I don't know. Is Valve a game developer? I think they just made a. I mean, it's not anymore, but it, <laughs> I wish it were. I mean, we have a show on Sifted called Pactor Factor, and one of basically people just ask Michael Pactor questions. He's a financial analyst in the games industry, if people don't know. And one of the questions on this week's episode was, you know, why isn't Valve creating games for Vive? You know, it has this killer IP that's sitting there. VR arguably is still kind of waiting for its real killer app, and Valve kind of has the uh, assets in its war chest to do something about it. Well, didn't Gabe say they had three games in development for Vive that were both? Yeah, but I mean, Valve has had games in development this whole time. It just never releases them. Yeah. Um, I think think the games are finished. They're just buried under piles of cash they and they literally them under all the- they're like where did these games go again new- they can't see it from all the money yeah new dump truck somewhere in the bottom of my scrooge mcduck tower yeah new dump trucks show up every day and dump piles of cash on uh, it's hard to find anything in there i mean i get that they don't have to obviously they don't have to do anything it doesn't have to do anything it doesn't want to at this point but you know its fans i think would appreciate a bone here and there and also you know it went heavily in on htc vive and it, it kind of was like a a co-marketer, a co-promoter of this technology, but it's done very little to ensure its success. So it's convinced its fans to jump on board with the Vive, but then hasn't really reciprocated that with, I think a lot of people expected Valve to make games for Vive, whether that's realistic or not, probably not. Uh, But when Valve says something, people listen. And when it kind of went out on a limb and said, look, we're supporting Vive, this is the superior technology. This is the one our fans should get. Our, I think a lot of the fans jumped in thinking, okay, well, if Valve is so deep into this and so behind this, then ultimately they're probably going to release games for it, and it just hasn't happened. And uh, you know, I don't want to begrudge Valve because Valve, to me, is a very consumer-friendly company. It listens to feedback from its fans generally. Uh, but there comes a certain point where you know, you've made enough money. What are you going to do now? I mean, what what does Gabe do for 
creative gratification at this point. I mean, obviously, Steam is a raging success, and I'm sure that, you know, helps him go to sleep very easily at night. But he's also a very, very creative guy. And I remember going to E3 in the early 2000s and sitting in on demos for Half-Life 2 uh, and, you know, Episode 1. And, you know, just seeing the fervor that he had for game development. And also, he's very freaking smart. It's like it's fascinating sitting there watching him play and talk about games. And it it just baffles me that he wouldn't miss that tremendously at this point in his life. He's made more money than he could ever spend. Uh, and generally, when you talk about people who are extremely wealthy like him, towards the end of their life, and I'm not saying that his life is almost over, but he's sort of in the twilight of his career, so to speak. Generally, those people return to philanthropy and creative pursuits and i don't know how much he's donating to causes that he supports or whatever but he sure the heck hasn't come around to doing creative stuff so i i feel like you know it it's a success steam is a as big a success as he could have ever imagined like let's bring it back around now let's start giving something back to the fans who helped build this service into the behemoth that it is Maybe, but I feel like, like, don't get me wrong. I, I, a lot of me agrees with that to play devil's advocate to some extent. Um, he, it's also selfish of us to ask of that, ask that of him. He's, he's also arguably made the greatest video game ever, uh, Tetris aside, excluding Tetris, um, and, and Half-Life 2. And it's like, you know, he's won his championship, right? Why does he need to keep toiling? And maybe he is. Maybe he hasn't made anything that is as good. Maybe there's like a little Steve Jobs complex, right? Like nothing is living up to Half-Life in his mind. Or Steve maybe, Jobs used to always say that. He's like, I made the iPhone, but it's not as good as Half-Life. It's well, <laughs> did you did you buy that four gig iPhone? I think you might be right. It's not as good. As uh, but then, I mean, that brings up the question, then why do the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots keep trying to win Super Bowls. I mean, to me, a winner doesn't say that's good enough. It it keeps trying to get better, and it keeps trying to satisfy its fans. Um, I I don't buy that. I don't buy the what we've done is good enough now. I never top that. Maybe he's moved on, and he's scratching that itch, solving, playing the game of Steam, and, (laughs) you know, running that company. Or, you know, maybe he's going home, and he has the best uh, ships and bottle collection you've ever seen. Like, you know, I don't (laughs) know what this man is doing at this free time. He doesn't seem to be... He's not a toxic personality on Twitter, so keep doing what you're doing. You certainly know? answers like, lots of emails. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, speaking of emails, whoa, what, how did that transition happen? Uh, <laughs> we've got an email that I want to read. It's, it's kind of long, but I think it's worth it. Uh, this was sent to dlcfeedback at gmail.com where you can send emails as well. I meant to read this last week. We sort of ran out of time, uh, but I, I'd like to read it. it, it this, is, um, this comes from Matt, and he talks about something that – we mentioned a while back that was happening, but it's something that I'm not really connected to, and I think it's a cool report. He said, uh, I wanted to give you an update from the No Man's Sky ARG, walking, or excuse me, waking Titan, as last night was one of my favorite ever gaming experiences, and I wasn't even holding a controller. Early Saturday morning, the next phase of the ARG started with an email being sent out. You had to cut out two cipher wheels and crack a code. The code would then be entered into the wakingtitan.com website. These emails went to thousands of people, and for every person correctly entering their personal code, an additional piece of a photograph was displayed. Eventually, a picture of the Atlas statue at the Rockefeller Center, New York, was revealed with the message, date, July 29th, time, 16 hours 15, or 16H15, 
Protocol. Use passcode ATLAS. Wear a bright color and hold a black book in your hand. Now, I live in a rural part of the UK, so at this point I thought, that's cool, hope somebody turns up so we can progress the ARG. Later that day, approximately 9.30pm UK time, I got a notification on my phone that the Waking Titan Twitch channel was broadcasting. So I hurriedly switched on my laptop to watch the stream, but it was just broadcasting the Atlas logo. Someone in the Twitch chat mentioned there was a Waking Titan-related Periscope stream from someone in New York. After a quick search, I found the Periscope stream of a Reddit user uh, whose name I can't pronounce. He (laughs) had been to the Atlas statue meetup and was now following a guy holding a purple umbrella above his head with about 30 people trailing behind him. After about 15 minutes of excited walking through the streets of New York, they were ushered up to the 14th floor of an innocuous office building, and a group of six people were led into a room where they were asked to solve a puzzle that would lead them to unlock a briefcase. Then the internet magic happened. Thankfully, the Periscope streamer was in the first group of six, so the world got to see and hear what was happening. The Twitch stream started to broadcast live footage of them in the room, and hundreds of Discord users were eagerly poring over the information. To cut a long 45 minutes shorter, between the hundreds of Discord chat users, 2,200 Twitch chat users, and 2,000 Periscope chat users, and the keen six gamers inside the puzzle room, a solution was found. Ultimately, the end prize was slightly anticlimactic. It was a couple of memos adding to the lore of the ARG, but the fact that I was sat in a sleepy rural town in the UK and was part of an experience shared by thousands all over the world in real time shows what is possible when people come together for a common goal. Additionally, I find it fantastic that a year after uh, a year on after No Man's Sky apparently failed so badly, it still has so many active users and some who care about it so much that they would spend time in its universe in real life. Hopefully you'll find this an optimistic tale of what good can come from video gaming and the collaboration of social media. Thanks for all your great content. Matt, Matt, thank you for that awesome story. I just find that so cool, man. What a neat thing, right, guys? Yeah, I think he nailed it, though. I mean, he he really just spelled it all out why it was so awesome. Did you guys actually catch it while it was going on? Did you guys kind of get to be involved in it and no. see it all go down? No, I, I've been completely disconnected from this. We've had a couple of people talk about it, and we mentioned it on the show a few times, but... All these ARGs, I sort of like to hear about them in retrospect, but I'm never really in on them as they're happening. But this sounds so fun and so cool. I'm right there with you. It's I think it's hard to get the messaging out about these things. And I think another big issue with them is that they take so long for the payoff that maybe some people learn about them and then they disengage before you ever get the payoff. And the other thing I would say about ARG games is usually the payoff is never worth the effort. But Matt nails it. And then it's not really about the end payoff. It's about the 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 process the procedure uh the teamwork the camaraderie uh the feeling of accomplishment when you kind of uncover that next step and i think the other thing too that he mentioned in his write up uh was how impressed i am with hello games for doing this because i mean for all intents and purposes this game is kind of dead and buried um and it kind of needs something disruptive like this to kind of get people's interest in the game again and you know they're still working on the game um, and I think this was kind of a smart way to do it. Even if there wasn't a lot of engagement while it was happening, yeah. the echo chamber is now responding. We're a part of that. Um, you know, we curated the live stream on to sifted while it was happening. And a lot of our users were like, Oh my gosh, this is so awesome. So, 
you know, I think in the position Hello Games is in with No Man's Sky, that this was a really smart tactic to kind of re-engage fans and get new fans interested. A lot of people are speculating that this ARG is leading to a sort of pseudo relaunch of the game, that they're going to add a a big new patch and try to make the game, uh, you know, reintroduce the audience to it. So maybe that's my guess. I wish this ARG, you know, it has like thousands of people and everybody's doing something different. And it's like, okay, on your computer, enter the following thing. And what they're doing is programming the game. They just don't know. They're like, (laughs) 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 all right. Uh, that shows uh, Christian's a very deep understanding of how programming works. Uh, I have watched (laughs) hackers. I have watched, scanners i have watched <laughs> the matrix one two and three uh, all right guys uh, let's move on to the stuff we've been playing but first i want to thank our sponsor squarespace oh my goodness if you're looking to make your next move make your next move with squarespace chances are whatever that next move is it's going to need an online presence and the best way to have an online presence is to use squarespace it's a great place to make a website to host that website, you start with a beautiful, award-winning designer template. Those things are so unique and interesting, and you can make them even more so by having your own spin on them because the tools that Squarespace allows you to use are so easy. It's all drag and drop. It's all what you see is what you get. You can add an online store, just like a few clicks. It's so, so easy. And you actually get a lot of support with Squarespace as well. Award-winning 24-7 customer service. You get a domain, uh, unique domains uh, if you buy a year at once. Squarespace is used by so many kinds of people, creatives, businesses, musicians, designers, artists. Anybody looking to make their next move uh, really is, it's in their best interest to use Squarespace. I use Squarespace. JeffCanada.com is, is hosted on Squarespace. I've used it for, my God, so so long. And anytime anybody asks me about you know, starting a website or any kind of online presence, I point them to Squarespace because it just makes it easy. You don't have to worry about all the garbage that goes along with so much of what it takes to build a website. You just do it the way you expect it to be done. Drag and drop, move stuff around, make it your own. It's cool. You can start a- No Game of Thrones spoilers during this ad, (laughs) Jeff. What's that? I don't get it. No Game of Thrones spoilers. Dragons? And dropping. (laughs) Um... (laughs) So start your free trial today at squarespace.com and you can get 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code. What you do is you go to squarespace.com slash DLC and then use our promo code Jeff sent me, which is all one word, J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E, and you'll get 10% off. Plus Squarespace will know it was a good idea to support the show and that means we get to continue making it, which is pretty cool as well. Make your next move, squarespace.com slash DLC, promo code Jeff sent me. Dragons. Shane, your playlist is bursting at the seams. You're playing a lot of good stuff. What do you want to talk about? Oh, man, I play so many games. It's, uh... <laughs> you guys, so many you guys, you don't even know. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one of the advantages to uh, the relatively weak release schedule over the last month is that there's been lots of small games coming out. So I've been able to spend time with a lot of games instead of dumping hours and hours into just one of them. I mean, the game I've been playing the most lately is Fortnite. Yeah, me Um, too. We we talked about it earlier in the show. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a game with this business model where it comes out in early access – 
you're asked to spend $40 for it. And then, you know, four or five months later, everyone else can buy it for free. So it's don't been... You, don't you... I don't have it, uh, but don't you get stuff for that? Aren't you buying like a founder's pack where you're getting trinkets or something? So like when it comes out for free, I won't have what you have. I would still need to spend $40. Just a bunch to... of boxes of potential loot. <laughs> no, you're absolutely oh, no. right. And I mentioned it earlier in the show that it was almost overwhelming the amount of loot that you get for your 40 bucks. And you, you should. I mean, for $40, that's a lot of money for a game that's eventually going to be, be free for everybody else. And when you first boot up the game and kind of go into the loot system for the first time, it is just, it's like a waterfall of loot just piling well, it's down not on so much. <laughs> it's not even just that it's a waterfall of loot, which it is, but it's it's because there are so many different things that can be loot. Yeah. Think what do you of, mean? Well, if you think of a waterfall of loot in most games, that means, oh my God, I got like 27 different armors and 48 different weapons, no. which happens here as well. But yeah, yeah. you but- can upgrade everything in this game and there's so many systems yeah that allow you get schematics for weapons. Four. you get schematics for building types because you're building stuff in this game you get followers you get squads you get heroes which are playable characters all of those can be upgraded so you get xp drops for for all those that come in loot boxes and then is it discrete xp so if i get like a hundred again I, I have not played this game at all i've watched a little stream of it but like if i get 100 xp is it like 100 follower xp it needs to be assigned okay huh. so you get wow. hero xp you get squad xp you get uh weapon xp you get and all of them are their own little autonomous units that how all do you have to manage be- that do you have an excel it's- spreadsheet with a pivot table like what are you t- what are we doing that's my insane. biggest criticism with this game is that wrangling all of this is just it's insane and the game in my opinion does not do a great job of explaining how all that stuff works uh yeah, so you it end does up a terrible job yeah, it does. Yeah, I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so you end up I've been just... watching YouTube videos to try to just understand that stuff because there's a lot of weird synergies because part of the game is also like this strange card game where you have to synergize different icons on different cards in your squads to create the ma- to maximize your your stats and I've been watching YouTube videos to understand all of that. The game does just doesn't even explain it can i and there's also this meta game that runs underneath the hood where you have like these squads that go out on missions and they will go and get even more loot for you and uh, you don't even know what's going on as far as what they're doing but when you come back after finishing a mission you'll kind of see the results of their labor um, and again that isn't explained very well at all either and you can level them up and you can switch the characters in and out for those squads i mean yeah it's a it's a it's a ton of of really micromanagement after every mission and the missions I find very fun. They are basically just tower defense waves of these really fun designed uh, zombie type things called husks coming at the thing that you just spent about 20 minutes building and you're trying to defend that thing you built from them. Um, But after every mission you you sort through or you sift through (laughs) – Tons of loot and all of these different upgrade paths and you're putting points in different skill trees. There's like six different skill trees that you put points in and you're deciding what to level up and who and what cards to place in what slots. And then you've got this collection book that's also this other thing that you can level up. It is a ton of stuff and yet I'm still loving it. <laughs> yeah, I'm having fun with it. Um, I think my if I had to level the biggest criticism against the game is that the actual gameplay does get a bit repetitive. Um, the fact that you are constantly getting new loot and new items to build with and new weapons and things like that, it helps with that. But now that I've played it, I don't know, I guess I'm probably around 12, 
14 hours maybe playing the game. Uh, the gameplay itself does get a little repetitive, and it is a little maybe too easy. Um, I haven't really faced a lot of stiff challenges, and a lot of that depends on how many people are helping you uh, with each one, because people can just kind of wander off and, like, leave. Uh, so there's sometimes where the waves start coming in, and maybe you start with four people, and maybe two of those people just start wandering off and just start looting, because looting's a big part of it, too. You have a pickaxe, and pretty much everything in the game is destructible. So... You know, cars and trees and shrubs and anything. You can destroy it and then you get resources that you use to build with. Not uh, only some- that, but the the entire level is this wonderful, vibrant playground for that. Because yeah. you start- it encourages you to leave the mission. <laughs> well, or to just, ex- you know, explore the entire map before you, yeah. you up the mission. Yeah, and you, you do have time. You the mission at any point. Yeah, uh, but they give you time to kind of build your base and make sure you have enough ammo for your weapons and things like that. But a lot of people just take that time to screw around and don't actually prepare for the mission. Well, and then they get halfway between- through the waves and they're like, oh, I'm out of ammo. And they run off to try to get ammo. And then it's just two or three of you trying to fight off the waves. Well, that's the difference between playing with randos and playing with friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, hey, that's can a- we just say randoms because they're both two syllables? Yeah. <laughs> no, uh... <laughs> They're, those are different things. Random is a is a random person. Rando is a a, a, a support. A random Rambo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the, but the cool thing it, with the destructibility and the building stuff is Christian is you go, oh my god, there's a thing I want right there. Oh, it's behind that wall. I get, how do I get how do I get into that place? Oh wait, I can just destroy the friggin' wall and get to it. Or there's a Kool-Aid thing. Kool-Aid man the up, game. Up, up on the t- <laughs> What'd you say? That's a Kool-Aid man, the game. You're dead. Yeah. Or there's a thing up there. How do I get to the top of that building? Oh my God, I didn't take the hero in that has double jump. Oh wait, I'll just build stairs to it. Or I'll just build a big ass tower and jump to the, you know, and crawl. crawl. It's, you have complete control over the environment. And yeah, that's the coolest part of the game is the flexibility. It's like the, and the game does do a good job of teaching you to do that because uh, when you first go into the levels, maybe they'll just be an orb sitting on top of this platform with no ramp up to it. And so when you see that at first, you're like, how am I supposed to get there? And you're like, Oh, I just build a set of stairs to go up there. And that kind of kickstarts your, your thought process on how you're managing the game. Uh, and it, it, it generates sort of this new strategy for you to play the rest of the game. So there are kind of little hints here and there that do kind of ingratiate you to the systems and, and sort of the goals of the game. Uh, my big complaint though is, is in the menus after the missions where you, you're just kind of left to your own devices to figure out what it all means. I completely agree with you. And I also agree that the, the, the main gameplay loop, it hasn't got tiresome for me, but I kind of see that on the horizon of, Oh, is this all the game is, is just fighting waves of enemies in different scenarios. They do a good job in creating interesting new locations for the thing that you're defending. So it has, it forces you to change up strategies and create interesting choke points with the stuff that you build around that defensive position. But I wish and hope that as the game continues through early access, there would be some variation of mission types because the, the worlds that it drops you in are really cool and interesting. Yeah. And I love the art style. Me too. Yeah, the art style's great. When you go in and you're like, uh, you know, the beginning part of a mission, you're going in and you're looting for materials. You go into these houses. Some of the levels have houses. Other levels are like abandoned train yards and wrecking yards and forests and caves and stuff. But all of it feels so hand 
designed. Like all of the houses make sense. Like the layouts make sense. It looks like somebody lived there. There's, there's no, it doesn't feel cookie cutter. And so that world is so vibrant and interesting and well designed that I want to do more stuff with it than just set up my outpost and defend it as waves of enemies come at me. Yeah, and that's one way you can see all the time that has gone into the development of the game. Because this game's been in development for like four plus years. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's taking so long? You know, it's a tower defense game. How can it take four years to create? Uh, but the variety and the believability of the environments is is exceptional. And the other part of it, too, is that you are rewarded for poking around. Um, you can like go to the basement of this building that's way off the beaten path and you go down there and there's this secret door and you bust it open and you go in and it's just like a loot bonanza. So it's not one of these things where all this stuff's tucked away and there's no reason to actually go find it. When you actually do discover kind of these tucked away nooks and crannies in the game, you get rewarded for doing it. So yeah, on that, on that level, it's the game is very well designed. I agree. And And that stuff is just super fun. And the combat itself I find to be super fun. I'm playing... I'm relying mostly on a melee uh, hero, and I have a buddy who's playing as a sniper, and so our one-two punch is really fun. I'm like frontline slicing and dicing fools with my sword, and he's back in the back picking them off with his sniper rifle. It's really fun. I just, like you said, I just see on the horizon like, okay, there's going to be a point at which we just keep doing this over and over and over again to grind the loot, and there's no other thing. We're not like preparing for a big boss battle or something it's just more and more of this have you failed a mission yet jeff i have not yeah i haven't either not well, once and i haven't I, really come close i haven't even got to like a nail-biting scenario where like oh my gosh there's three hits left on the base and like i haven't even got close to that i've heard that it there's a big uh difficulty spike at you know at like t- 10 15 hours in i'm i'm about 10 hours in and i haven't hit it yet but yeah i'm a little past that and i have not got there yet yeah I don't know. I really like the game a lot. It's, you know, one of the people in the chat, uh, right when we first started talking about it, I'm sorry, I don't remember who, what your name is, but, um, said, you know, the key question is, do you buy it now? I have a hard time telling people to buy a free game now. Um, it is hard to recommend. Yeah. But <laughs> even really with all fun. the loot. And I think they do try to compensate for people paying with loot. I mean, you get a ton of it. Like, you know, I highly doubt that when people boot up the game when it's free, next year that they're going to have 10 playable characters in the first like 10 minutes. And I mean, that's pretty much what happens if you get the founders pack and you pay for the game, you have 10 playable characters right out of the gate. You have tons of people to throw into your squads. You have more weapons than you could ever use. It's almost like overkill in some ways. Uh, So they do try to reward the people who actually pay for the game. If someone asked me if they should pay for it though, I would probably say no because I have a lot of I have a feeling that a lot of the issues that you and I are kind of discussing right now are going to be more than ironed out by the time the game goes free to play. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what that timeline ends up being. Um, tell me about Lawbreakers because that comes out tomorrow. Uh, I played it I don't know over a year ago uh, in North Carolina, um, but it's coming out. It's finally coming out, and it and it's another game that went from being a free to play game to being a pay for it up front game. Um, so what is your take on Lawbreakers? Let's see. Um, I am a huge Star Siege Tribes fan. Um, people who uh, subscribe to Sifted are probably tired of hearing me talk about Tribes. Uh, but uh, back in the day with my Voodoo 2 card, back in the uh, late 90s, I was hopelessly addicted to Star Siege Tribes. And what I liked about Tribes was that it was completely different from any other first-person shooter simply because it incorporated flight. And it added a whole other level of challenge and difficulty to it. And 
in, in all honesty, a level of skill. And uh, a lot of people turned away from it because it wasn't just an on-the-ground shooter, and it was hard. There was a big learning curve. And uh, I think a lot of people... And then it was revived by Hi-Rez Studios a couple years ago, um, and it didn't do well then either. And people have kind of rejected that model in the past. I, I love it because it's something different. And that is the first thing I would say about Lawbreakers. It is absolutely something different. So if people have kind of grown tired of the same old boots-on-the-ground gameplay, although it seems to all be going back to that now. I think that's kind of the irony of this game, is that you know you have franchises like Call of Duty that in the past have kind of given you this freedom of movement in the air, and the recent installment now is kind of dialing it back and going back to the boots-on-the-ground style, but now you have Lawbreakers, which, I mean, it's, it's aptly titled. It breaks the laws of the first-person shooter that a lot of people are used to experiencing. And so from my perspective, someone who really appreciates that, you know, I thought the Call of Duties that gave you the jetpack, they were like some of my favorite Call of Duties in the modern era. So I think it depends on what you're into. If you're willing to get over, and it is a steep learning curve, not just because of the flying, but the controls in the game are really, really extensive. Um, it's not just point and shoot like you're used to with a lot of shooters. And uh, so I think... I think it's going to have an audience with people who have kind of grown tired with the typical first-person shooter and people who are good at the typical first-person shooter, and I, and I hate to say it, got maybe a little bit tired of winning all the time. This is a whole new challenge for people who have been playing first-person shooters, and it makes sense because it comes from somebody who has been playing first-person shooters since really their inception and creating shooters since their inception. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all that this game is coming from Cliff Blazinski Studio. I'm also not surprised at all that the gameplay, once you get a hold of it, is really tight and provides a lot of flexibility in how you handle each skirmish. Um, I think the one the one caveat I have with the game, and not that me personally I have with it, but sort of looking towards whether it's going to be a success or not, is it is... I think a lot of people look at shooters like this as character-driven. And I think Overwatch is a big reason for that. And you've seen a lot of clones like Paladins and things like that. that and Paladins is doing really well also as just a clone. But the, the thing this game lacks is sort of that character-driven element. Um, everything is there as far as under the hood, as far as characters having unique abilities. And uh, you can kind of find a character that's more tailored to your play style. But it's the visual representation of the characters. They all kind of bleed together. Uh, and, and on our flagship show on Sifted, Gameface, Matt and I, my co-host, we were talking about how with Overwatch, when you see a character from a distance, from a long ways away, you immediately know what that character is. You you can just tell by the silhouette that, okay, this guy has this ability and that ability. I know how to counter him. I know what his weaknesses are. I know what his strengths are. I know what to stay away from. With Lawbreakers, it's really hard to get that very quick visual representation of the character and recognize exactly what you're dealing with in that skirmish. And I think that might be an issue for the game going forward, especially with kind of the the expectations that have been laid down by these games or for these games by games like Overwatch. But that's a very easy fix. Um, changing character models is not that difficult. I mean, and obviously they're going to be adding characters to the game like any multiplayer-focused shooter. So I feel like the caveats that I have with it are very easy to overcome. Um, and of course, you know, you start talking about the personal relationships of the artists who design the characters, but Cliff is a strong leader and, uh, he's also very open to change and to feedback. And I think once this game comes out, I think it's going to do pretty well out of the gate and I think it might flatten out. And I think what he's going to realize over time is for the game to be successful over the long haul, they're going to need to kind of readjust how the characters are represented in the game. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of got that sense too when I when I was there and played it. Um, I'm certainly not in the camp, Christian. I don't think either of you, either of us are in the camp of 
tired of winning too much at first person shooter multiplayer. There are people out there that are though. I mean, you watch some of these people on YouTube that just wreck shop every single match in Call yeah. of Duty. And it's like, does that, is that fun after a while? It's like playing football with like your four year old brother. Like, is it really fun scoring touchdowns against your four year old brother after a while? Yeah. Uh, I think it's just human nature to seek out a challenge. And I think this game will supply that for most people. Christian, let's talk a little bit about your uh, playlist. What do you what do you want to what do you want to hit? You and I talked uh, about Tacoma. You talked about it on your show. You put out a, a YouTube video about Tacoma, and then I had you on newest, latest, best last week, and you and I talked at length about our feelings about Tacoma. So I don't know if you want to rehash that or just touch upon it lightly or talk about something else. Yeah, I'm going to touch upon it lightly. Yeah, we did a review together on Newest, Latest, Best. People can find that on iTunes. I did a video review on my YouTube, which is Christian Spicer 713, the number 713. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I think we it's safe to say, and jump in if I misstate, it is a well-made game technically, but left us both a little disappointed in how the story was delivered and, and what the story ended up being. Is that sufficient? Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say it's one of my it's on the lower tier of walking Sims. If you're dying to play that type of game, I think you'll have a good time with it. But I think there are plenty of other experiences that you could better spend your time with. It's, it's got a of- lot of really interesting ideas. And um, I, I think you and I both found that it didn't really have a heart. And it's interesting yeah. because I've, I've read a lot of people that I like who have praised it for having a, a big heart. And I don't know. You can listen to our more detailed reviews. On, on, we've already stated um reasons for that but i prefer gone home to it which is fulbright's other game uh, much yeah. much more yeah yeah did you guys see last week that uh, it came out that you can finish the game without ever doing anything you yeah can just stand, i think that's, you can just stand still and finish the game that's no surprise to anybody that's played it because it, i mean the game isn't asking you to do anything other than wait um yeah. so i don't think that's a big indictment of the game it's not like i can get through a call of duty level without shooting a gunshot it's it's more like yeah i mean the game isn't trying to be anything more than standing around waiting you're it's it's an observation game you're an observer to a thing and you're just listening so the fact that you can get through it without doing anything is not a surprise and i don't think it's even necessarily a indictment of the game new subgenre the standing simulator (laughs) it's it's way easier than walking uh you can do it while you're in line to get into a concert or ride your favorite ride at disneyland next step the sleeping simulator (laughs) oh i need that one need that one too um uh, touch on quick left. I've been playing more Splatoon 2, the ketchup versus mayo splat fest. A little bit of controversy there. I did not have this personally. Um, I was cat cats up and we lost. Uh, oh, apparently, mayo, there were a lot baby. of, mayo were a lot of cats got, up, cats up battles. You got taken to the mayo clinic. <laughs> um, <laughs> they've done some other splat fests. I, 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 I think the bodily fluid splat fest, I do not think this was their best splat fest in terms of <laughs> what people were doing. Um, ooh, there was some not fun stuff online. Um, but I still like the game a lot. I still really enjoy. I have not finished all of the single player stuff. For some reason, I find it stressful. I like it, but I find it stress. It's like just that fine line of platforming balance. Um, of like, this is fun. And also, why didn't I do this right the first time? Like, kind of intricate jumps and, and stuff like that. Uh, backing up to no longer ignore your joke. Are you playing Splatoon 2 or are you just saying you like mayo? I like mayo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, People think but- I'm gross, but now I've been validated by a video game. <laughs> I love uh, Splatoon 2. It's so good, right? Yeah. Have you finished I, the single I, 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 player stuff? 
Yeah, I finished everything, um, and I've continued to play multiplayer. Although I have a really weird, weird issue with my Switch, where you know my Joy Cons can continually disconnect from my console. It is one of the most annoying things ever. And I love playing this game with the split Joy Cons. Send them in. Uh, what'd you say? I sent mine in. They got better. I did too. I sent oh, in my man. left one, and they sent it back, and it didn't change anything. I don't Dang. know if it's. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. I, I, th- may, I think I may have a defective console. But I, anyway, I still continue to play it despite all this because I love it so much. Uh, and I know this may not be a very popular opinion, but I think it honestly might be my favorite Switch game, even over Breath of the Wild. Wow. I just have so much fun with it. Um, and I, I enjoyed Breath of the Wild, but I also, in my opinion, I think it's a little overrated. Um, and I just am loving the crap out of Splatoon 2. And I did play the first game, and it was one of those games where... I played it for review, and I went through the campaign, and then I played the multiplayer for like a week and a half, uh, and then other games came calling, and I never really got to get back into it once sort of the everybody else got into the multiplayer. And again, this was a case where I played this game a ton with just other journalists. But because of the way the release schedule has worked out for this game, with not a ton of other big games coming out around it, I've managed to be able to have time to go back and dive back into the multiplayer with everybody else. And I am just loving this game. It's like a, it's like, I like to say it's a cover shooter. Uh, instead of having walls for cover, the ground is the cover. And it just adds this whole different element to the game that you really can't get anywhere else. And I'm just having a blast with it. So I highly recommend it if you're a Switch owner. Um, you're going to get a lot of playtime out of this game if you buy it. Yeah, and I've been trying to articulate better why I think uh, the big reason I enjoy it more on Switch than Wii U, I would just say I like the console better. Uh, It has like a spot in my heart that I love. And I think, trying to think of like a definitive reason, is it's so fast to start up and play. It's always in this sleep mode. It's not spinning up a disc. There's very little loading. I'm in, I hit A three times, and I'm playing. So like if I have 10 minutes... I can play a full multiplayer, maybe two rounds of Splatoon 2. Oh, you can play three. Is that, <laughs> because the matches are three minutes. And that, to me, is both a, both a positive and a negative. When I first started playing the multiplayer, I hated that the matches were three minutes apiece. I always felt like there wasn't enough ebb and flow to the game. It's like if the other team started dominating, I didn't feel like I had enough chance to kind of come back. But now that I've been playing with everybody else, I've discovered that that is not the case at all. If you... Have enough people with headsets, which which is really, really rare. Most people don't have headsets. And maybe that's all for the better, in all honesty. But if you do get on a team with people who have uh, headsets and are communicating, it it's plenty of time to turn the tide in a match and coordinate things. So, you know, looking at it on down the road as possible esports penetration and things like that, like I think this game has a really good chance of being kind of one of Nintendo's flagship esports titles. Um, and yeah, and again, you know, the fact that the more I've played it, the more that it's evolved as far as how I look at the game, that's generally a pretty good sign for a video game, that it has this hidden depth and uh, enough flexibility uh, to kind of change your play style over time and to keep getting better and better. Christian, yeah, and that I haven't played it that much, and I still love it, right? Like it's that headset, Christian? No, no. Shane, you're not playing this with the headset either. Shut your face. Like, <laughs> no, you're, I, using, you're using Discord or something, right? You're not using the Nintendo app. No, I, I mean, first of all, I had to play with Nintendo stuff to review the game, to evaluate it. Um, but once I kind of got it set up and knew what I had to do, I've just stuck with it, to be honest, because organizing stuff in Discord, it's like, that's not happening. <laughs> I mean, you think, the, you think the Switch app is easier than like just getting on Skype or Discord to play with people? Well, you have to coordinate that with the people you're playing with beforehand. In all honesty, my friends list on my Switch is minuscule compared to my friends list on Xbox Live or PlayStation Network. So 
coordinating something like that beforehand and then getting in and playing the games and setting up the private games and then making sure <laughs> that people don't drop. It's like, ultimately, I just sit there with that crappy setup. Look, I'm not saying Nintendo's chat is passable by any stretch of the word. It's a travesty, and I can't even I can't even fathom the thinking behind it. But uh, ultimately, yeah, like once I had it set up and had it working, I did continue to use it. So, And it sucks. Wow. Don't get me wrong. It sucks. <laughs> uh yeah so yeah play that game it's good uh and then lastly and i'm I'm working on a video review for it super late because the game's been out for a while but i just played it um i played what remains of edith finch yes no on my top five of the year of christian no no what is wrong uh, with your heart i want to do a spoiler <laughs> chat with you um we'll do it we should do it well made uh and like competent you know technically well made beautiful in terms of the aesthetic and the style they went for well voice acted i really the, you are a girl going home um and learning about your family's curse and it kind of plays out as a series of vignettes without spoiling anything about the game not long took me about two hours to beat as well and this game too he says to beat <laughs> Go ahead. yeah well, he's Beat old school. It. That's that game, what we that said. That game was really trying to get, prevent you from beating it. <laughs> well, the only thing that was preventing me from beating years, it, so. the, the thing that was preventing me from beating it was boredom as the back half of the game feels like you're wading through quicksand as nothing changes about who you are or the characters you're experiencing throughout. Except and the mini games become redundant. That's oh, so not true, but go ahead. Well, anyway, so the game is garbage, and um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not garbage. Um, it's not garbage. It, it's well made. I think Gone Home is uh, head and shoulders better, and I also think Firewatch is better. The ending of Firewatch leaves you wanting a little bit too. But the, the big questions I have for um, What Remains of Edith Finch, I think it's not true spoilers, but I would save it for a spoiler discussion, so I won't I won't dive into it here. But I felt like the big questions it's having you ask and answer. I think there are problems in its narrative and there are also problems in how it's presented to you playing them. And I don't think the game recovers from that, but otherwise it's, you know, it's interesting and worth a play, but it's not the best of the genre. In okay. My opinion. Let me apologize to Shane for having to be here for this, but I'm getting uh, kicked off DLC. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not giving you that dream come true. Christian. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I've been I've been thinking about this a lot because I read your tweet about it as well and it, and it broke my heart as you often do, um, and you're probably going to do again in the VR talk section. Uh, but I've come to a theory about you, Christian, based on you know several years now of of hearing your opinions. And last week we we got into a big dis- discussion about Dino Frontier, and uh, you know I was talking about the magic of picking people up, and you're like you're not picking people up, you're you're just pushing a button. And I, I, I suspect maybe you're just more of a literal guy than I am. I think that you just – I think this may explain your whole like – I can't play a, a role-playing game where they're asking me to find my son and then I, I can go and do 27 other quests in the meantime. Like you, No, 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 no. I, I can. Right. You have to admit that that narrative structure is bad. Uh, I think it's bad if you take it literally, if you take the... What the heck is the game asking you to do? Well... If, right, if you throw away all of the work the designers did and the people who took time to write the story and you said, forget that, it's not pressing at all, it's not interesting, I'm going to go over here and play with myself for 10 hours, then the game is great! No, 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 it, it, it's... 
you can suspend your disbelief. I, I mean, I think some, I think I am able to suspend my dif- disbelief. You are not. You, you choo- either choose not to or are unable to suspend your disbelief enough to say this crisis can be put on hold to do other things. And I'm able to say, oh, this crisis is still urgent and still impactful. But if I'm in that world and I've come upon the person that lost their hat, I can also help the person find their hat. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm not able to follow the analogy you're making. Like I hear the literal words you're saying, but like the correlation you're making between two things is lost on me. Um, no, I agree with like, I, I think I agree with your end point, but I don't think it's about I take things literally. I think it's I respect the creator's work and the vision that they're trying to put forward. And I'm trying to understand the message that you're that that they're trying to tell me. And if they don't want me to think that we're using Fallout 4 as this example for this conversation, if they don't want me to think that finding my son is this urgent mission, don't set it up. Don't tell me about him at the beginning of the game. Like to sit here and say that you're able to suspend your disbelief to go and have this hat mission, you're just giving a pass to bad narrative. Imagine if you were watching um well, I can use one of the Marvel Netflix shows because it also was poorly paced. And they they present this thing that is burning at the end at uh, Jessica Jones that she must do. And she only has 13 episodes to do it, but she spends two just sulking around, not diving into her character, doing whatever. Like to sit here and say that I'm not able to suspend my disbelief because I'm not willing to go and get the hat is an insult to the narrative that the game is presenting and the structure in the way the game is presented. They shouldn't have told me that this thing was the most urgent thing and preyed on my emotions as a dad or as a person who has lived in a family and then tried to say that it's equally as important for me to go and find this hat because it's going to give me 10 XP that will do the thing. Like that game easily could have started with me waking up out of the vault and coming out and wondering what is this world and I'm engaging with this town and figuring things out and this guy says you know, you look familiar. You you remind me of my son. I lost my hat. And you're like, oh, well, this guy has a really, I have a relationship. I'm going to go find his hat. I'm going to do this thing. And then as you're putting the story together, this great mystery comes out that you too had a kid and that kid is gone and whatever and whatever. And now you have a compelling story that unfolds as you play it instead of presenting you with a big play space to go run around in and a story that you ignore until the last hour. That's just a, your taste. You, you, you couch that in being good narrative and it's not good narrative. It's your taste. You, I am willing to uh, presuppose that this urgent thing pulls me out of everything I've ever known for my entire life. We're talking about Fallout, obviously. Everything I've ever known for my entire life, which is this very small space. And then once I, I see this much broader world, I'm still I'm still on the case of trying to find my son. But in the meantime, I'm reckoning with all of the new information that I'm I'm dealing with all the time. And there's all these other people. And because I have empathy for those people, I, I now am able to help them and do things and, and figure out stuff and go, get sidetracked from, from my son. Think about your own real life. When you have something urgent that you need to do, do you only engage in activities that get that thing done? No. You procrastinate. You do other weird things or stuff that comes up. I, got, I hope – I hope for you and Aaron and Jack that you'd never lose your son. <laughs> well, no, I'm never going to put him in a pod and then have someone come and steal him. I think the problem that we're having here, though, is that you're seeing what is considered traditional narrative structure across other entertainment entertainment mediums like television and film being transformed and, and sort of disposed onto video games. And I think a lot of game developers would probably agree with Christian and say, hey, you know, we we've presented this as a primary goal, 
we would like to make this a little more urgent within the player. But I think where the, the headbutting comes into play is that most players don't want that. They want player agency. They want the ability to play a game how they want to play it. And you've really seen that with the rise of the open world action RPG over the last half decade to, uh, to decade. And it, they've become, it's become the most popular genre and it's become the most popular genre because they're not linear and because the players can tackle things in the way that they want to. And I think designers can also be really smart about it. So maybe they give you this big goal, but, and there are all these other side missions that are opening up and your map is littered with icons and things like that. But the smart designers can make those side missions tie into that primary goal and give you sort of little caveats of story and little asides and maybe how that major goal that you're working towards has bigger implications than just you and the people who were immediately presented as a part of that problem. Um, I, I, and I think, I, yeah, I think you're I don't at- think there's an easy answer to it because it's what players are asking for. And ultimately, I mean, we, we'd like to say they do it for the art, but you know, these developers and these publishers, they're making games to make money. And, uh, a lot of times, and look, sometimes player feedback isn't the best thing for a game. Sometimes listening to your customers isn't the right thing. Uh, but I think if the developers and publishers of these types of games were to not listen to fans in this particular instance, I think it would not do well for them financially. Right. No, and you're right. It's about choice. But I think we also kind of got sidetracked because we started talking about Fallout because it's a game we can talk about without worrying about spoilers for the actual right. games that... What is, are you doing after this? We'll do a, we'll do a, <laughs> a, a, a Finch thing. But... I think that the the criticism you have for that game is like is because the the magical metaphor of it doesn't work for you, right? It's a world of magic. It's not literal. So, okay, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it. It'll be bonus content on the other show. I also have an interview uh, with um, um, the the uh, president of. Um, of Ready at Dawn, and that I can put at the end of this episode nice. as well. Uh, it was already a newest, latest, best episode. Uh, okay, so let's. So you didn't like What Remains of Edith Finch? I enjoyed it. It was not. I I would put Gone Home and Firewatch as probably my top two of that genre, and then I would go. It'd be down a couple of spots below that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to VR talk, where Christian can continue to break my heart. Man, what a great time of year for VR. It's amazing how many good things are coming out. Uh, Shane, you've played some VR. What what headsets do you own or have access to? Uh, That would be singular. Okay. (laughs) That would be, be, unfortunately, the bottom of the barrel, the the lowest common denominator, PlayStation VR. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Well, I am unfortunately one of the people who has problems with motion sickness with VR. Um, Even games that other people say that they haven't got sick playing, I get motion sick playing them. So anything where I am moving in VR at a fairly quick rate tends to make me queasy after 10 to 15 minutes. So I have to play those games in chunks. Uh, Resident Evil 7, you know, I, the, the, what really sucks about this is that I've waited my entire life for this. You know, I, VR has been a dream to me since I was a little kid. And when it finally gets here, I'm unable to experience it as much as I would like to. So I've even tried, you know, playing at 11 minutes and then the next time 12 minutes. And I've just kind of capped out at this 15 minute point 
uh, with games where you move where I, I get so sick. And the, the other problem, too, is that once I get sick, it takes a good hour and a half or two hours before I really feel normal again. So I've kind of gravitated towards the more sedentary VR games where you just kind of sit and you're uh, just plucked down into this environment and experience it that way. So games like uh, Star Trek Bridge Crew, uh, Werewolves Within, those are the VR games that I've really enjoyed playing. Both made by the um, same company. and, and both They are, both, Ubis- both Ubisoft games. Um, and the other thing about it, too, is that I kind of prefer playing those games in VR because my contention all along with VR when uh, Facebook bought Oculus was that Facebook's play with Oculus wasn't necessarily games, that it was more about the social element of uh, of VR. And I still swear that to this day that eventually everyone on Facebook is going to have a virtual room where other people can go and virtually visit those people, and you're going to be paying money for furniture to put in your virtual room and like a home to hang on your- you might call yeah. it a home right with a capital h <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I, I think that's facebook's bigger play with vr um and i'm kind of starting to understand it now because now that i've been using vr for a long time as someone who does get motion sickness from it and i think a lot of people the more people dive in i'm not going to be as much of an outlier i think you're going to be see a lot of people who have issues with motion sickness with the technology until it gets a little better and I think in the meantime, while the technology kind of gets up to speed and it's something everybody can enjoy, I feel like the more social-oriented uh, games are going to be the ones that kind of resonate with the wider audience. Uh, I, you know, I can't disagree with any of that stuff. Everybody's mileage may vary. But I also think um, every game can't be painted with the same brush. And it, a lot of that motion sickness stuff can vary even game to game. Um, so... I yeah, hope. I've played the games that everyone's like, go play this. This doesn't make anybody sick. And then I play it, and then 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, God, that's now I'm wasted for like two hours, and I need to do this, this, and this, and I can't do it because I just want to lay on the couch and cry. Yeah, sorry <laughs> to hear that, man. It that really sucks. hits me hard, unfortunately. I, I used to get – I used to be much more susceptible than I than I am now, and uh, I'm, I'm finding that stuff that I never used to be able to do, I'm able to do in VR. And uh, I, I think games have improved. I think the tech – you know, the, the way that developers are using the tech is smarter. But, you know, there are going to be those people like yourself that, that just... Um, and I am someone who can go to Six Flags and ride roller coasters for 14 hours straight. Like, literally, at four hours in, my wife is like, I'm done. And I'm like, okay, we'll go get something to eat, and I'm going to keep going. So it's not like I typically have issues with motion sickness in general, in life. But with VR, for whatever reason, I just can't do it. I don't know what it is. Well, I highly recommend trying Dino Frontier if you haven't. That's another seated in one. I have not yet. Seated in one spot, PSVR exclusive. Uh, It's amazing, and I love it with my whole heart. Uh, But Christian, you've been playing Star Trek Bridge Crew as well, right? Yeah, I got a crew together. Played with my brother and one of his friends. The stream is still archived on my Twitch, which is just Christian Spicer. And then uh, Global Reset, who's been here in, in the chat from time to time, jumped in with us as our fourth. I texted you like late at night. I was like, "You up?" Yeah, I got that when I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I it's my first time diving into it. I had it on my GameFly queue for a while, and it just never came. And then it showed up, and I was like, "Ooh." Um, what a silly fun like i said during the stream i was like can this be my game of the year just based on this mission and then me never playing it again like i'm not sure how what the legs are of it in terms of i'm playing it every day but in terms of like you know it's the weekend and my brother and i want to hang out and and have some fun for a couple of hours it was such a joy to see how awful we were at uh crewing a bridge (laughs) Um, we did, uh, my brother and I did one, a couple before we got our third and fourth and it's really, 
the game shines, you know, with four people when you're the captain, otherwise you kind of just are, uh, telling the AI to do things. And it's not nearly as funny or flustering. You can hop into them too. You can bop around and, and okay. possess them momentarily to do the thing and then pop back. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then we played one in the, I'm going to say it wrong. What's the new ship, like the new show, the, I guess, I guess, whatever the fan. Yeah. Aegis, yeah, the fancy ship, and then we did one. After we did a couple of that, we switched over to the Enterprise for one. Oh man, <laughs> all those buttons and knobs. Uh, what a! And if you're engineering, you're just sitting facing a corner the whole time. You're playing. Yeah, it's like working in a factory in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's sad, but fun and, and really well done. It, it it's it's so silly, right? Because my move controllers were battery dead, so I was playing with the Dual Shock. Oh no. Which made me look totally serviceable in terms of playing that way. Yeah, I think also it works fine. Made my character look much more believable. Like these other arms are. But you don't get to do the silly arm. like wagging around or pointing at people or dancing. That's like you a- can still point at people with the dual shot. Yeah, you can. And it was a lot of head bobbing. Uh, but yeah, I did not. No dabbing by me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can't um, dab, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> what I love is when people role play. Yeah. That to me is like the coolest thing um, when people just they don't act like themselves and they take over the role of whatever position in the ship they're in. Well, you sort or of maybe find they... yourself naturally talking like, the, yep, like you know, you absolutely do. and like, yes, Captain, right away, Captain, it's, you know, all that stuff is fun. I found that in Friday the 13th as well, when people actually role played as Jason and would try to talk like him and say things that he would say, it would just kind of ratchet up the intensity of it a lot more versus some guy being like, I just killed you. So (laughs) I like it when people get into games and kind of go all out and uh, try to make the experience better for everybody. Yeah. So it's really fun. If you haven't played it and you're sitting on the fence, uh, it's great. Getting in uh, global was playing on Oculus and that, you play integration was a little more confusing than we would have liked it to have been, but it worked. It's amazing that you can do cross platform like that. It's pretty great. Yeah, it, it, it is pretty cool. So you can see the stream. I think it's like two and a half hours of us being silly. One of the missions, it says it, we got like trophies and everything. It was like success. You did it. And I like had this legit like excited. Moment. I was like, yeah, I didn't think we we're going to pull that out. And we saved four out of, I think, the 200 people we were supposed to say. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, again, that's Red Storm, right? They did both uh, Bridge Crew and uh, Werewolf Within. And they 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 kind of dialed it in. They, they, I think are the first, first studio that really is understanding social and presence and how fun it is just to be there. And I'm, I'm looking to looking forward to see what they do next. Yeah. And then my lone echo update, I'm not going to break your heart. I love the game. I'm just very frustrated that as far as I can tell, and hopefully I'm stupid. Um, as far as I can tell, it does not tell you when it saves and, Unfortunately, I've had times like a phone call or a kid or whatever, and I need to jump out after 20 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever. And I, I'm not just like ripping off the headset. It's after I completed the third task of something or went to a new area. And I'm like, surely that's a save. And I think I've probably lost an hour of, of oh. progress having that happen multiple times. And so I'm, I'm just a little frustrated with the game, like that aspect of the game. So I haven't gone back to it since the last time that happened. Um, and I, I, for the life of me, I can't tell when it tells you when it saves or what checkpoints are. And it seems, it seems arbitrary. I love the game, but that part is, is, is frustrating me that I've put it down for a while. Are you still, you're still in the space station? I wasn't. Okay. But now you're back. Now I'm back, that baby. When you leave the space station. Yeah. Yeah. The game's I mean, great. This game has, I haven't seen a review for this game below nine. It's, I think right now it's my game of the year. I, I, I mean, it's either that. Jeff, or is, it, is it VR's killer app? 
do we finally have one? I think so. I think it's a game everybody should play. And it's a, it's, it's a game where you don't fire a shot. You don't kill anything. Yeah. It's amazing that it can be as exciting and fun and th- – I mean, I'm being redundant now. But it's an incredible experience in my opinion. It is great. It, I'm just very frustrated. And, and again, maybe I, it is me. Maybe it's me and I miss it and something shining in the corner that I'm not seeing. But uh, it, it it's irking me. All right. Yeah. Well, I hope you stick with it because there, it has untold delights awaiting you uh, as you continue. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear about your fan-made Spider-Man, though. So you and I talked a little bit about the Spider-Man Homecoming VR thing that was pooped out right before the movie and just kind of like teased what it might be to be Spider-Man. Uh, and we both were very disappointed by it because it's really not much of anything. Uh, well, some fan agrees and uh, made this one person made a better version of it, basically uh, un- unlicensed. Un- I mean, we kind of goes back to our Metroid discussion from earlier. So. <laughs> uh, this guy just decided to make the Spider-Man simulator, and it's very simplistic. I mean, it's it's very one person. You know, it's a generic New York city, uh, with very, very simplistic buildings they are basically just rectangles with windows on them. Um, but you can spin webs and sling and fling yourself around through the, the city. And there's actually skill required in order to web sling. And you've got Spider-Man looking hands. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's free. You can find it now. I'm sure it'll get taken down at some point, uh, when the lawyers hear about it, but, uh, it's worth checking out completely free. This kid just put it up on GitHub and you can download it. Um, it's like 250 megs, not even much of anything. And there's really not much to do. There's no bad guys or anything to chase. You just, it just shows you how web slinging and, uh, you know, swinging through a cityscape is going to be amazing when someone finally actually does it. And barf. As a, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> Guaranteed it'll make me barf. I'm sure it'll make you barf. <laughs> it didn't make me barf. It didn't even get close. It did nothing to you? No. And, and you are really flinging yourself around. You have a jump when you can jump, you know, higher than a, What's the phrase? Uh, Taller than a steeple. Uh, (laughs) I I think that's Superman, isn't it? Whatever. Uh, He does whatever a uh, arachnid is able to. Isn't that how it goes? Um, Does whatever these regardless of their body shape. I think is how it goes. Anyway, he uh, it's 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 worth trying. It's fun, and and the thing I like most about it is it doesn't do it for you. Like you actually have to be good. And I was bad for a while. I would like land Spider Man, Spider Man. What is it? How do I find Spider-Man. it? Spider Man. Uh, I found it on the Oculus or the Vive subreddit, and you can look for Sp- Spider Man. Um, but yeah, it's worth worth checking out. All right, guys, um, let's move on now to a little bit of quick questions. You can submit quick questions to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. There's also a sticky thread on the subreddit. Everybody who sends us quick questions over the next couple of weeks is going to get a Steam code for Out of the Park Baseball 18, courtesy of friend of the show Rich Grisham. Uh, Out of the Park Baseball 18, a baseball simulator that has gotten all kinds of great kudos uh, across the web. So very, very cool thing that we're able to give these codes out to everybody. Uh, our first two are from the same person. It's kind of a one-two punch. Uh, Corey says, quick question. Is there one game or genre you wish you were better at? Shane, what do you think? Fighting games, without a doubt. And this is a genre I have been playing since the beginning of time. I mean, I've been playing games since the 1970s and I've been playing fighting games almost as long as that. And, uh, 
you know, I was always good enough to beat most of my more casual friends, but when I start playing people who are really good, I realize I'm completely inept at it. And I think every year I watch Evo and you kind of get that spirit like building up inside you. And it reminds me of like my old arcade days back in the seventies and the eighties. And I go on like this little mini nostalgia trip for the whole weekend. And, uh, I wish that I could go and at least like maybe win like one match, (laughs) but (laughs) I know even the worst players at Evo would just wipe the mat with me. So fighting games is something I really love to play and I'm just not that good at them. And so that's the genre I would choose. Christian, how about you? First-person shooters, I, I would love to be that person that's you know just pinging off headshots left and right. I really enjoy the genre, and even like single-player content, I wish I was that person that was just pew, 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 uh, taking people out left and right and putting sick trick shots on my YouTube. I'm not. I'm plug the body and then occasionally get a headshot and go, yes! <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a genre that I wouldn't want to be better at. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah. I'm kind of taking this question a little bit uh, unexpectedly because I, you would think that I would say first-person shooters because I'm rubbish at first-person shooters competitively. And, yeah, I would like to be better so I could maybe enjoy Overwatch a little more than I do. But I actually would rather be better at the genre I'm best at so that I'm even better at the best thing I can do because I'm not – the best at the best thing I can do. I'm still sort of <laughs> in the middle of the road at the best thing I can do. And that's, you know. That's well, we're progress. also fighting a losing battle as uh, right. as we're at the top of the demographic for, for video games. And, okay. uh, you know, our, our reaction times are not getting any better with time. Uh, I think we've all tried to make up for that with what we think is uh, superior knowledge of the game space but at least in my experience that hasn't worked out so well so yeah. that in the metro pass gets you a ride in the subway right right exactly jeff what, did, uh, what was your, wait what was your answer talking about how great vr is is that what you wanted to be better at oh that's a low blow christian what <laughs> you think you're already the best at that yeah actually well <laughs> did you say MOBA? no one else is doing it for real did you say moba no one else is doing it, Christian. That's why I'm the best at it. I did say MOBA. <laughs> okay. uh, I would like to be even better at Heroes of the Storm um, because I'm still, you know, not great. You and I would like college to college somehow, right? Well, that brings us to the follow-up question uh-huh. from Corey. He said, do you or did you ever want to be a pro gamer? If so, what would you or have you chosen to compete in? Shane? That ship has long, long since sailed for us, I think. <laughs> Well, sure. We're, yeah. It's like saying, you know, do you want to join the NFL? (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, no. Um, But by the time pro gaming came around, I think we already were at the acceptance stage of, yeah, that's never going to happen for us. Yeah. But in a magical fantasy world, as proposed by Corey, where you could snap your fingers and be a pro gamer, which, which genre would you want to be a pro gamer in? Well, for me, I think it would be would be first person shooters because I think that is the genre I'm closest to the skill level to actually be able to do it. I think everything else is far too unrealistic for me. So yeah, I think it would be shooters. We're a palette I think swap here. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say I think I'd probably have to go with Dota too because did you see the size of the prize purse at the international? Yeah. Twenty million dollars. Yeah, I play League of Legends and I am Ooh. far from ever playing professional. I've been playing it for a long time, too, man. I think that game makes me feel older than anything else. $20 million, Christian. Yeah. So Mighty Sandwich had the idea in the chat. We're starting a master's division in gaming. and it's Oh, I like that. Like the senior pro tour. It's yeah, people want to watch that. And up. <laughs> 21 and up? No. Let's do 31 uh, Yeah, up. exactly. Let's go up a little higher there. <laughs> mine, mine would be Street Fighter. OG, like probably, or not OG, but maybe Alpha 3. 
I'd be yeah. the best oh, alpha three player nice. in the world. That'd be pretty great. I mean, how great I like would that it. be when you you hold up your fight stick in front of everybody and you have a whole? It is cool. Oh man, that's like. And I know MOBAs have like a whole like arena thing for people, but what like, part of twenty million dollars do you not understand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, just the economics. How much did the Evo guys win? Not twenty million. No, I don't think they even won a million. To be honest with you, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, think, it's like I think they won a fight shit, a fight stick, a fight and a shirt, <laughs> a, f- a fight stick and a shirt with a brand logo on it. <laughs> you got that Capcom T-shirt action <laughs> yeah. hard. That might be possible, actually. <laughs> at least for some of the the lesser known games or the least less popular games there. <laughs> All right, Alex Green says, "Quick question: Which game do you know will never get a sequel but deserves one?" Shane. Any ideas on that one? I would go with Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem oh, from the GameCube era. Uh, the game That's obviously had one. flaws. If you go back and play it now, it's not as mind-blowing as it was back in 2002. But I think the ideas behind the game and the concepts behind the game uh, were unique for the time, and they're still unique. No one's really done it. I know some of the team from Eternal Darkness tried to kind of scrap together an indie project, uh, to try to create a spiritual successor to it, and it kind of crapped out ultimately. But I still feel like the concepts of the insanity system that was in Eternal Darkness, no one's really done it since, which is shocking to me, uh, because it seems like something that wouldn't be that hard to implement if it was done on in 2002 on the GameCube. Um, but, you know, I think when you get to a certain age playing games, you really place a premium on new concepts and new ideas. And it's hard for me to understand how 15 years later... There still hasn't been another game that tried to attack sort of the concepts of Eternal Darkness and do it a little better. So that would be my pick. Mighty Sandwich in the chat said Half-Life 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that it's that first part of the question, which is, which game do you know will never get a sequel? That's interesting. Christian, do you have, a, have an answer for this one? It's hard. I mean, nostalgia, and it kind of did get them. But, like, nostalgia makes me want to say another um, Daytona USA. But that's not really what I want. I just want to be 12 again and playing Daytona USA. Uh, (laughs) um, The thing I'll say right now that hopefully violates the first part of this game, I'm going to put it out into the world so that I'm wrong later. Infamous. Yeah, I guess I read the question wrong. I was assuming that it would be games that never got a sequel in the first place. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Infamous got a sequel. Well, yeah, but never but you want another one. I'm putting another. I want another one real bad. So yeah. I'm going to say I'm going to say Infamous. <laughs> no, I think I think Shane read the question correctly. This is like a Fine, you lone go first game. and then I'll think of something. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of games that I've brought up before as like underappreciated things like Wakeboarding Unleashed. I really like that game. I'd like to see them. <laughs> There's an old game, an old I think OG Xbox or Xbox 360. I think it's OG Xbox. No, it was Xbox, PlayStation 2 and GameCube, I actually did a video review of that for uh, X-Play, one of the very first episodes ever of X-Play back yeah. in the early That's aughts. a fun game, right? Wasn't it fun? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it. during that whole O2 era from Activision where it had that entire wing of its publishing arm that uh, did extreme sports games. Right. It's crazy how that subgenre has completely crashed and Gone. burned. Yeah. It's like... Well, the other know. one that I was going to bring up is Metal Arms. Did you ever play Metal Arms? That game was oh, yeah. great. Yeah. It was really good. That's a good pick, yeah. That game, was that on original Xbox? Yep, that yeah. was another Xbox PS2 GameCube game. I lobbied that developer to add a left-handed control scheme into their game because I, I had such a hard time playing it the way it was. And then I just 
learned how to play right-handed with video yeah. games. Glitch in the System was his subtitle, right? Glitch in the Metal System, Arms, Glitch yeah. in the System, yeah. So it was a really fun game. I'm gonna say it was. Tearaway and Bully would be my two answers. Ooh, yeah, those are both good. Both I good, I think you might get your wish with Bully, though. I think I uh, that, so. that one might come eventually. I don't know. Do we need another Bully at this point? The world. There are rumors floating around already about a Bully sequel. Like, it popped up on, I think, on Game Informer's database or something, and people, like, freaked out about it. And they're like, why would... Because it also had a subtitle, and people were like, okay, we can get Game Informer adding it to his database, just wishful thinking for SEO purposes or whatever, but why would it make up a subtitle for a game that yeah, it was just adding to his database? So, it, you know, it probably was a bunch of bull crap, but that got people really talking about it. I feel it. like back when that game was released, it was really transgressive to play as the bully, and now everybody's a bully, so it's not <laughs> it's less. You know. Yeah, I mean, if you think uh, Rockstar's games get heat now... <laughs> yeah. Wait till they put out a game called Bully with the way things are today. I mean, that, that would go over like a lead brick. So, really? yeah, maybe you are right. Maybe we, we never will see a sequel to that game. All right, last one. Quick question. This one comes from Norman Zoidbergley. Uh, he says, quick question. When you were a kid, were you the I'll play and let my friends watch kind of friend or the you can play a few rounds slash every other round friend? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depended on the game. You know, everybody was, like, good at certain games. And uh, so if I was good at something, I would step up and I would play it and I would try to help out my friends if they got stuck at certain points. And likewise, you know pretty quickly if you're not good at something. And that would be when I would kind of sink to the back and just turn into uh, to the watcher. Yeah. I liked I liked Life or Level. We were big fans of Life or Level. Um, as far as you could go without dying or if you got to the next level, then we switch over. But I have to admit, i got to be honest here... I played a lot of games uh, sitting around with my buddies, like Zelda Ocarina of Time, for example, where we would all work on the, the, the puzzles. Or, yeah, or Resident yeah. Evil, where like we're all like, oh, watch out for the left. And one person would drive, and I tended to be the guy that drove. Yeah. Admit. So I don't know if that makes me a good person or a bad person. Probably. Well, I think it makes you a good player that people relied on because they, they were counting on you to actually execute. It's like right. they can come up with the ideas, hey, you need to do this. But a lot of people shrink when the pressure is on, and if you're the type of person who can pick up the controller and do it well, then people are going to kind of lean on you. And I think I saw that when I was really young with uh, Mike Tyson's Punch Out. Um, like you know, everybody could get through the first handful of fighters, but after at a certain point, you have to have played the game for hours and hours to have memorized all the patterns. And that was where you kind of saw that one person in your group who had played it more than anyone else ended up being the person who drove yeah. while everyone else kind of said, oh, this combo is like two uppercuts and a roundhouse or whatever, <laughs> trying to help him to memorize the patterns. But yeah, I think that's one game that I would point to that was kind of like there's the one guy who's the best at it and everybody sat around and watched him play. Uh, and a lot of times just to see what came next. Because back then you didn't have magazines and websites to tell you what was coming next. And you're like, well, look, if I play it, it's just going to be another wasted attempt. Let this guy do it so we can see who the next boxer is. Were you that guy, Christian? I was share, Unless it was with my brothers, then I would be like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> <laughs> with friends, we would, we would share pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well. Again, if you want to send your quick questions in, dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Thanks to everybody that sent them in this week. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. We do have our parting gift coming up shortly, but I got to thank Shane Satterfield for being with us. Thank you so much, man. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a blast. It was great talking games with you guys again. Great. And where can people keep up with you and your stuff on the web? So I am Denfire everywhere. 
Uh, every social media account is doing fire on PlayStation Network, Xbox Live, and yeah, I'll accept friend requests from everybody, so don't sweat like sending me a friend request. So I am Dinfire, D-I-N-F-I-R-E, everywhere. Uh, and you can find my journalistic stylings on Sifted at Sifted, S-I-F-T-D dot net. Awesome. Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? A few things I'll mention here. Uh, I'll be in Austin August 31st through September 3rd doing stand-up there as part of the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival. Uh, I've done that fest before. It's always great. Um, I'm streaming a little more regularly. What's that? Oh, did I stream The Punisher for Sega Genesis the other night? Yeah, (laughs) I did. Did I beat it? No, I did not. Did I try with both Frank and Nick? Yeah, failed both times, baby. <laughs> you can find that at Twitch, which is just Christian Spicer. I also have them archived. I put it up you know, like a day or two later on my YouTube, which is Christian Spicer 713 And then Cheapy D from Cheap Ass Gamer and I, we're going to start some, we're trying to do, get some regular PUBG mandates going. We played once. You can find that archive on his channel, which is twitch.tv slash cheapassgamer. And we're playing again Thursday at 8 a.m. We're going to go for that chicken dinner. We are not good. Uh, I think our best was 14. We're like consistently top 20, but getting into that top 10 and going for, for first is hard. So uh, that'll be uh, Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Twitter's easy way you can touch with me at Spicer. I'm at Jeff Canada on Twitter, and you can hear me talk about video games, video games news, keep you up to date every single day by listening to newest, latest, best. It is a quick daily show to keep you in the know, and it's uh, about ten minutes long. Give it a shot. You can find it at Anchor.fm/nlb or by by searching for it on iTunes or Google Play Music. Anywhere you get this, you can get that. So check out newest, latest, best every single day. Also, I have a movie and film review show called The Slash Filmcast. You can find that at slashfilmcast.com. I also have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. All right, guys, let's wrap the show up now. Although I guess we're going to have – it's going to be one of the longest shows ever if we're going to have all this bonus content at the end. So you're going to have a lot to stick around for, guys. we got you covered. I hope you're still running, geeks and snakes. <laughs> uh, let's wrap the show up now, though, with our parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion. Shane, do you have something to send people out on, a recommendation that might not be a video game? Yeah, I've been listening to this album for like two months, and I can't stop listening to it. It's the brand new album from Slow Dive. Uh, They are a shoegaze band, if you're not familiar with that. Lots of feedback, uh, lots of reverb. Uh, They're a band that was actually around in the 90s, and they were kind of one of the progenitors of the genre. They disappeared for 22 years. They came back in 2014 and started touring. They just put out the first album in 22 years a couple months ago. In my opinion, the best indie album of 2017 so far. It's ranked in the top five albums, period, on pretty much every list that has come out so far for 2017. I highly, highly recommend it. I can't stop listening to it. Go get it. Wow, this one's Slow Dive. Yeah. And it's proof of how darn uncool I am. <laughs> I've never even heard of foot. Gaze. <laughs> Shoe gaze. Shoe gaze. Yeah. You never heard of uh, the band My Bloody Valentine? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, like the like Psycho Candy from Jesus and Mary Chain kind of kicked off the genre, okay. and then the other bands kind of ran with it. So, Christian, how about you? You got a parting gift? Also, music. This is in my pop punk segment, my pop punk minute. Um, 
the Eternal Boys have a new album that came out last month called Awkward Phase, and it is incredible. Eternal Boys, I didn't I didn't know about this album because I didn't know they changed their name. They used to be called the Space Pimps, uh, I believe. Yeah, just the Space Pimps. And then they changed their name in like 2016, 2015, 2013, I don't know, something like that. Anyway. They must have lost all their space hose. <laughs> all gone, all gone. Um, Eternal Boys, Awkward Phase, it came out in July. They're from Pittsburgh, and it's great, great pop punk. Awesome. We got this uh, sent in to us from a listener. This comes from Andrew. He said, I just want to send in a quick parting gift. While it is tangentially related to video games, it's really a business book. I just finished Console Wars by Blake Harris. It describes the rise of Nintendo and the rise and fall of Sega during the early to mid-90s. I was born in 89. My first console was a Genesis with Sonic 3. That said, my first real awareness of video games didn't come until the Nintendo 64. This book told me everything I didn't know about the first console war. Ah, the Great War, they call it. Um, (laughs) This book provided a (laughs) lovely business study of how to take down a giant in a burgeoning market and subsequently how to self-sabotage that success, at least in Sega's case. It's a bit long, but a good book for any business or video game enthusiast. Love the show. Thanks, Andrew. If you want to send in a parting gift, you can send it to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. My parting gift is a Netflix uh, movie, actually, a Netflix original movie that I watched uh, called The Incredible Jessica James. And this is a movie that stars Jessica Williams, who you may know from uh, The Daily Show. She was a correspondent on The Daily Show for several years. And boy, gosh darn, she is charming. Uh, and this movie is, is you know, it's, it's simple, it's sweet, it's lovely, it's uh, just a nice kind of charming little film to watch on a weekend night with someone you love. It's funny. Uh, it's not going to change your world, but it's it's just a really sweet, lovely, short movie. And uh, she is a breakout star. That girl is going places because, my goodness, is she ever magnetic on screen. The Incredible Jessica James, very much worth your time on Netflix. All right, guys, we got bonus content coming at you, so stick around for Christian and I spoilering up uh, What Remains of Edith Finch and my interview with uh, Rue, whose last name I always have a hard time saying, so I'm not even going to try. But he's the president of Ready at Dawn, and they made Lone Echo. So it's a really interesting discussion. Stick around for that. But this is the end of the show, and I do need to thank Shane Satterfield and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. I do need to thank everybody in the chat room for making the show better in real time. You guys are awesome. Thank you for doing that. Thank you to all of you that also downloaded the show. Maybe share it with a friend. Give us a little review on your platform of choice. All of that effort really pays off for us, so we appreciate it. Also, thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for those cool bumpers. We'll be back next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place. All right, Christian, here we are in spoiler talk. So you are forewarned. What Remains of Edith Finch is a very brief experience. It only takes about two hours. I played it in one sitting, which I really recommend to people. I think it's a a wonderful, just complete experience to do in one sitting. And I also really recommend people try it. So don't get yourself spoiled by this discussion if you haven't played it yet. There's There's your warning. Yeah. All right. So if you heard the main episode, we got into a bit of a disagreement about what remains of Edith Finch, but you kind of weren't able to fully express yourself because it would involve spoilers. So I'll give you an opportunity to do that now. 
Uh, yeah, so I've, I've went and read reviews after I played it. I didn't really know anything about it prior other than that you loved it. Um, so my, my questions are, and if the reviews I read kind of didn't answer this, and maybe, you know, you mentioned that I'm literal or whatever. Um, is this real? This weird house? Like, it, it's very, the I game is yes very, no. the game is very real and grounded in some areas. In other areas, it's this fantastical house that is supported in a way that wouldn't work or whatever. But at no point are you kind of told as Edith that like, does she have friends? Like, did, where did she go to school? Like the characters are so, they exist only in this world that I I kept expecting at the end of this, she was going to be in a mental asylum. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, this is her like, mental illness that gives her these memories of this family and this family's curse and all of this stuff. It's like blending reality with fiction and all of this cool stuff in an interesting way, but it never does that. It plays the story very straight and you're just kind of left. I was left with this feeling of what, what this family is cursed and they all die. And because they all die, I feel like the impact every time I met a character, um, there's the saddest one I think is the toddler drowning in the bathtub. Yeah, um, but, but by that time I'd already seen, I think two other kids die of young, you know, elementary school or younger aged and then everyone else die. So as soon as I started playing with a toddler, it was just like, well, this, this kid's going to die. But, and it, but the, it, but the how isn't, didn't you find the how powerful, but you don't know the how, well, the how being that the mom and the dad weren't paying attention to the kid. Well, the kid, it's like this beautiful escape into this undersea ma- – it's, it's all of the – I think all of the deaths are like this kind of mix between tragic and exquisite. There's this like beauty to all of it. The I'm reminded of the, um, the swing set where uh-huh. the kid just wanted to be free and then you feel it. You get to actually feel that freedom for a short period of time but the ramifications of what it means are really what stuck with me. It's like, yeah, he, he was free but he also – died in that moment but he but and and in each of them it feels like they they achieve something in their moment of doom you know it's it's uh, there's a a beauty to it and and it's it brought to mind my own my own mortality my own sense of what you know what do i want to feel in life and you know these these people in this family sort of managed to get to a place of uh, magic fulfillment in the exact moment that they cease to exist. It's, I, I found that a very beautiful concept. And as far as like, whether it's real or not, I feel like it's more like a Raul Dahl book. You know, it's like, it's real in the context of this universe, which is fantastical. You know, it's, that's it's interesting. Both. We're reading a lot of Raldal now with my four and a half year old, but I feel like those worlds are built out more than this is just this house. And so you don't have the larger world around it in which it exists um, or other characters even kind of talking about it externally as if this thing is real or this curse is real. You have like the boyfriend of um, the horror queen that, you know, is kind of there. Uh, I Yeah, I just felt like. I, I see what you're saying, and I, I understood that as I'm playing it, that, like, these people are doing this thing, and then they're dying or whatever. But it also, I wasn't sure 
you know, how tragic this family was taking it. It just felt like there was a levity to it where they were telling you they were sad and like no one in the family necessarily was saying, oh, they achieved their greatness and then they died. It was he lived in his dead brother's room for five years before he was finally able to get out or, you know, he put himself in the basement because he couldn't stand living with around whatever. But then it's presented in this light. There's a levity to it in the way that's presented in, in, in you experiencing it. That- then he finally gets out, right? The, 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 the thing that kills him is his freedom. Like he gets out and then is hit by a train, you know? And it, it's all of that weird like storybook darkness where it is light and it is whimsical even in its dark tragedy. I guess. I, 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 I felt like at, at some point I just didn't – I knew that, that it, was, it was repetition in a way that wasn't fun or engaging. I think the story could be interesting. I think maybe it could have been better told not as a video game. I found that my really? – Yeah. Oh my god! I I loved how it constantly used my interactivity as a tool to express. Like, let's talk about the fish heads scene. Yeah, you didn't think that was incredible? No, it was so long and so boring, and I knew it was happening. Well, but it doesn't matter if you know what was happening. You, it was intentionally monotonous because that's his life. And then as you slowly escape from that and play a video game that gets more and more interesting and more and more uh, well realized, he is moving closer and closer to his own death. He's coming he's, – he's falling away from reality and falling into this fantasy world just as you are. Looks at playing that video game is just as monotonous as cutting the fish heads off. You're just right, going WASD. You... Oh, so you're saying that the, the the game itself isn't fun enough? What you're doing isn't fun. And even in that instance, that isn't fun. Like you, I understand it's presenting you with this monotonous task of mouse down, mouse over, mouse down. And you're supposed to be, you know, Metal Gear Solid 4 did that very well in its, uh, as you're crawling through the radiation or whatever. Right. And like here Spoilers you have for the very end of Metal Gear Solid 4. Really. Very old game. Um, <laughs> as you have this, this moment of doing this thing. But then the other thing you're doing with the other hand isn't any more fun. Like the scenery is interesting, I guess, but I also, I, I almost felt like I'd rather look at like the, the art they used to create the world in the house was more interesting art than this fantasy world of these, you know, weird gestures and stuff bouncing around. I, I just, yeah, I feel like that was a, that was a big miss. That was when I was, my feelings were solidified of like, this game is just okay as a wow. gaming experience. It felt like such magic that to actually use the metaphor of video games inside a video game to express this very tragic moment and kind of comment on mental illness. And it just, I don't know. I found the, the game so beautiful over and over and over again. And each of the vignettes is so different from one another. And yet they keep finding these new magical little human things to, to express um, I'm really sad that you didn't you didn't feel that way, but yeah, I found the gameplay got in the way of of everything that it was trying to do, and like you, you know, I I think that games can bring you in. I think, for instance, in Resident Evil Seven, the especially in VR, oh my god, the way you have to push the door open, and the it's like totally different than a horror movie where you're sitting there watching and you're like, don't go in there, Tina, don't go in there. Right. Um, but in this, you you actually have to go in, and it's not a load screen, and you're pushing the door open, and you can't see what's past it. But in this game, the interactivity I had with it, you know, the kid on the swing. It's just W S W S W. And I don't think that was any more engaging than a really well shot, well directed, um, you know, moment that Spielberg could have created or whomever pick your director. The idea that you are having to use two sides of your brain at the same time 
and 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 the transition from one side being dominant to the other doesn't isn't going to be expressed in any other medium in, in the same way. You're not you well, are that's the physically fi- that's the, that's doing the fish it. example again. Yeah, I thought that's what you were talking about. Well, so I'm just moving to a different one. The kid on the swing who like every time you're doing it, like you're you know you you play this mini game to make this person die. Um, but the baby in the bathtub, like you're clicking on a thing to get the duck down to get the whale down, but like. I don't know if that was better realized than me watching. Um, well, I don't. There's been some very uh, suicide has been handled very well in film in terms of you know the loss it creates to people and the harm and the person who does it and the state of the mind in which it happens. And yeah, I just feel like this game was lacking in in terms of setting its tone, setting its reality. And then also the house itself at times felt very real and lived in, but other times like all of this stuff was very presented. Like it was never, it was like, here's the diary. Go read who set that up. Why is it there? I can't, I guess maybe it is a literal, I can't pull myself out of this world that they've created that they don't explain in any way, shape or form. And then feel like I'm having this heartfelt experience with these characters who I know are going to die and mean nothing to anyone else in the family because they continue to let this happen without any real change. There's a little friction between the mom and Edie and then Edith. And it's just, uh, what's the definition of insanity? I guess doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Maybe that's what they're trying to teach you with this game. Um, but yeah, it just, I wish the magic was there. I don't, I didn't. Uh, the reason I, I made the literal thing was it, it reminded me of the same argument you made last week with Dino Frontier of, no, what I'm actually doing is just squeezing a trigger and it, instead of sort of being transported into the, instead of suspending your disbelief and going, no, what they're, what you're doing is analogous to this thing instead of what you're actually doing. Yes, of course, you're actually just squeezing a trigger. Of course, you're actually just pushing WASD and moving this guy through. But what you're, what the game is asking you to, suspend your disbelief into is that this side of his brain is falling deeper into a fantasy world, you know? And I, I think there's a similar, I don't want to say blocks, but I, you, you're just sort of unwilling to go on that journey with, with, in both cases. So I think my retort would be, I'm on the journey already. And what I was saying in Dino Frontier is that I could have just as magical an experience playing it on my computer monitor and clicking with my mouse as I do wearing a monitor on my head and clicking with my index finger holding a move controller. Both can bring me into that world and transport me into this magical place where I'm interacting with this character. And for Dino Frontier, I didn't feel as if adding the move controller added any actual intimacy with that that I can't already have with standard control or play mechanisms. And you're, cause you're not, you're, you're really, you're not really doing it. And it's the same thing that I could be doing with the screen and have, you know, this incredible experience like I had with Horizon Zero Dawn or. But you um, didn't have a moment in Dino Frontier where you were picking something up with one hand and doing something with another hand and juggling those things or picking up a dinosaur and pulling the guy off of it with two. I mean, you can't do that with a mouse. You can do it with two analog sticks like Brothers um, was a beautiful, magical game that was using, you, you know, I. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. And part of that, I think, might have been the limitations of the move controllers. But you you can do that with traditional controls, and I've done it before. I just, I mean, it kind of recalls also what you said about uh, Star Trek, where it's just like, I can't imagine playing that with a <laughs> dual shock. Uh, <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same to 
push a, an analog stick forward and move your hand than it is to reach my hand down and touch the controls like a member of the Starfleet would do. It's not. It's not the same. Both of them are representative. Both of them are not exactly what it would feel like, but one is far closer. Far closer. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, don't, I, I don't agree. Yeah. yeah that's fair. Uh, well, it's been fun to talk about it with you, and I love having your perspective uh, on this stuff, even if you know it breaks my heart and I shed a little tear inside. Um, but uh, I do, I do appreciate it. Um, anything else you want to say about the game, or should we wrap it up? No, uh, I think we're good. Thanks for taking the time. No, thank you. I am joined now by Ruvira Surier. He is the co-founder, chief executive officer, and president at Ready at Dawn. And Ru last spoke to me a little over a year ago. Uh, he was on DLC, and we talked about uh, Deformers, Ready at Dawn's game that came out uh, about a year ago. And in that interview, he and I talked a little bit about uh, – a mystery VR project that was in the works. And uh, here we are a year later and Lone Echo has come out and it is, I think probably my game of the year right now, beating out Horizon and uh, Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild and a whole bunch of very excellent games this year. And I'm so glad to have you back, Ruth. Thanks for joining me again. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, the game's Amazing. And it's fun. I went back and listened to our discussion about a year ago in June, early June of uh, 2016. And uh, you were very excited at that point about this game that we that you couldn't talk about. But uh, you talked about how your studio was breaking a lot of what were considered to be the established rules of VR at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that now that we kind of know how Lone Echo works? Yeah, sure. Actually, it was kind of tough actually at the time to, to drop the right hints. But uh, but I mean, approaching this project in VR for us was not just about uh, a new medium, a new uh, way of displaying a game, which was uh, you know going from a TV screen to VR. Uh, our big push was always about what the next boundary was that we needed to cross, and and for us, very early on, it was movement. Uh, we always felt that VR had a great future, but we just felt that that future would not exist until we truly were able to immerse ourselves and, and touch and and travel around the world that we're creating. And uh, for us, it came from uh, from an original idea that was uh, just that movement model that you see that we got inspired by, you know, astronauts on the ISS station, you know, that zero-G feel, uh, what, what it would feel like to have, to use your hands just the way you would use your legs. And in the beginning, I think a lot of people had concerns that... Um, People were going to get sick. That that was automatically the answer that anybody that looked at this would look at would, would give us. And we pushed further. We we did try certain things that really kind of did get people uncomfortable. But we needed to find a boundary, and the boundary came from uh, being able to build a movement model and breaking that boundary, uh, building a movement model that actually people feel comfortable with. But beyond anything else, forget the technical side it basically opened the door to true immersion. Because immersion, visual immersion is one thing, but tactile immersion is everything in VR. I agree, and it's an extraordinary experience playing Lone Echo. But my understanding is you guys were working on that concept before the touch controllers were available. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, actually. We had no idea that touch was going to be around. Uh, it seems kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's kind of funny because... It's uh, if you saw the first demo, and I don't know if we released. I think we might have already released a video of that first demo that we did. It was uh, just a gamepad 
uh, and you use the triggers to basically kind of push these two spheres out attached, attached to your body by two strings. You didn't have a body even. So your hands were literally two spheres. And all you did was like basically go left, right, left, right, and just attach to places in the world and kind of monkey bar around. Right. And kind of like the climb worked maybe? Yeah, a little bit like that. In, uh, the only difference here was that we had this kind of uh, zero-G feel where once you attack to something and you look towards a certain direction and you let and you push off, you got the, the velocity that you had by the push off and you could attach to a different side of, uh, you know, I think our, our first demo was inside like a kind of an old atrium. So you go from one wall to the other and it would feel like, oh, you know what? That just feels like I, well, what we think an astronaut would actually feel like in space. Yeah. And it's only afterwards that we got that whole, uh, you know what, guys, I think you're, what you're building would work great for this peripheral that we're thinking about. <laughs> and we're building. That's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I can't even imagine it without the peripheral because so much of the joy of Lone Echo for me is, you know, being able to look in one direction and push off in another and feeling so nimble and dexterous in zero G. And, and it really does make me feel like an awesome astronaut you know yeah i mean actually you're right it's, it's weird to think about it without the the touch and and actually as a matter of fact from the original idea to the point when we started working with touch touch actually brought another level of uh, of what we wanted to do with it originally it was just okay put your hands around something push off great but then when we saw touch and what touch allowed us to do then it became so became uh you know about uh, completely kind of emulating our hands, emulating our fingers, wrapping around objects. All of that basically was kind of uh, us pushing and then uh, pushing forward and then seeing touch and touch basically giving us ideas about how much further we could go. And you're right, today uh, we couldn't think of the game without the touch. And as a matter of fact, that's why uh, I think right after, I think I want to say three, four months after we started working with the touch, we talked to Oculus and said, look, guys, I think we just want to make this in a, a touch exclusive and they absolutely had no problem with it. That's awesome. Uh, another thing that I am so impressed with with the game is that I don't kill anything. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I mean, I absolutely love that. It is a, a tension filled, exciting experience. Uh, it is uh, uh, dramatic and uh, all of the things I'm looking for from a, you know, space fantasy game, a science fiction yeah. game. But, you managed to do that without having anything trying to murder me uh, and, and me trying to murder anything else. And I, I think that's incredible. And I, I've spoken for a long time about how I think VR in particular, the tech just kind of lends itself to doing smaller things that feel fun. Like, I feel like if, if what I did in Lone Echo was on a 2D screen, it wouldn't be nearly as fun because the joy is in the doing. Yes, yeah, I agree completely. And and it's funny that you bring that up. The whole like you know, uh, uh, you know, you're doing all of this without killing anything. And and I think there's definitely room for all of that. There's there's no doubt that you can actually do so much with the uh, gameplay. And we have such a such a vast horizon actually in front of us to to explore and do different things. But that that is as you said the the, the true fun of VR is immersion. The true fun of, of, of VR is, is doing, is doing the things and, and feeling like you are that person doing it rather than I'm pressing a button and this avatar is doing it for me. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it, it is, it is kind of a, 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 this kind of boundary that, that, uh, that VR provides us. Oh, actually this boundary that we can break through VR that you normally wouldn't find actually on a regular game. 
Yeah, and you and you spoke about uh, having the inspiration of the game sort of being the real International Space Station, and mm-hmm. the early sections of the game I find to be so fun. And it really is just feeling like I'm doing work. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm an astronaut doing what astronauts do, albeit in a, you know, a sci-fi setting. But I, I loved the, the boldness of that design to just trust that doing things is fun. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. We, I think in some ways, all of us that are science fiction fans or at least look out to, the, to outer space and, and wonder, you know, what's out there. There is this kind of child in us that always looks at how cool it would be to be an astronaut, just to go out in space in energy. And just that thought alone, putting that in the hands of people through VR, I mean, yes, it's not, you're not in zero G, your body's not there, but your brain can be fooled to think that you're there. You're, you know, that, that was kind of the risk of, 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 of thinking and, and hoping that players would see that alone, that, that, uh, that boundary that they, that many of us will never probably cross, uh, that, we are now able to do something that 99% of us will never be able to do in our lifetime. And, and, and it's cool to see actually, just as you said, uh, you know, that players have gravitated towards that and have enjoyed just being something in VR rather than being uh, kind of almost compelled to do like, where's the next game, gameplay mechanic? How, how much more, can, you know, are you going to let me do? And I don't think people have that, those questions anymore when they are in that VR environment. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And I, I think the game is paced incredibly well. I, you know, you start in this very enclosed space and you're doing really interesting things and you're moving around this enclosed space and you're learning about the environment and then you, you step out into space. And that moment was a legit gasp moment of, oh my God, I get to spacewalk now. And then, you know, where you go after that in the sort of, you know, last quarter of the game is even more astounding. It, it, it just continues to, to ramp up and, and I love the pace. Um, let, let me just bring up Olivia because I feel uh-huh. like she is a, a pretty major achievement in the game as well. Um, usually in these kinds of games, you have, you, you play as the human and you have a robot assistant that can be your kind of buddy and your AI fun. I feel like, doing it the opposite way was a much bigger challenge. Yes, actually, in some ways it was, in some ways it was easier. I think that, uh, that it, the natural feeling for anybody to play a game is, is that you want to be the human being. You are a human being, of course, and therefore you would only expect that who you play is going to have some more affinity to you than something foreign like, like, a, like a robot. But uh, after, after thinking about that side of it, if you think about it the other way, the reality of creating uh, uh, a robot, a sentient AI, what it provided us was a little bit of leeway in making sure that the player was not, never put in situations where the, the, the hero, the protagonist, and you, the player, were so far apart emotionally. So one thing that I would tell you, like if you play first person games, and you're in this really tense environment, you do feel tense, but imagine that your, your character said something so kind of, uh, how, how would I say, it? like either a moment of shock or awe or, or, or horror, whatever it is, if that character reacts, but you as a player are not really in tune because you're playing a game, you have a barrier, and you don't feel exactly the way it feels, you suddenly disconnect from your main hero. And we felt, all right, if you put the player in, in the shoes of a human being, we need to make that human being really emote and react really kind of strongly to certain things. But what if the player didn't react that way? 
what if the player didn't really feel the way the, the character does? What the Android allowed, allowed us to do is to actually approach the player from a, from a different point of view, which was the Android can remain a little bit distant, emotion, distant emotionally, which is closer to what the player would feel when playing the game. Yeah. But, but then the boundary, the new boundary, actually, the, the VR NPC became the new challenge for us, which was can we actually then create a human being that is actually going to be more human than you as a player? And that was actually kind of a cool idea, I want to say, two years ago, uh, as, a, as a, it would be awesome to do that. And then soon you realize that it is a massive task that is much more than what you sign up for. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I mean, I, I mean, we're really happy with where, where we've been, but we, we also have all these things that I know we left on the table that we'd love to explore afterwards. Well, I mean, I think that you succeeded in a way that I didn't expect. I mean, I, the, what happens, I don't want to spoil anything, but what happens at the very, very end of the game with that character had me, my heart racing and I was, you know, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing place you get to with that feeling of camaraderie with this human. And it must've been, uh, you know, in, in 2d games, you can definitely walk up to characters and, and look at them closely. But in a VR game, I am nose to nose with Olivia and can inspect her very close up. And somehow you manage to, to make her f- not fall into the uncanny Valley too far that I was off put by it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's great to hear. To tell you the truth, this is the reason why actually we do what we do, which is hearing this, hearing this from players and hearing this from people who experience the game. Uh, I, you know, you're right. I mean, it, it might not be the, the, the end all be all. It definitely isn't. I think there's a lot more. We're, we're just taking like the very first step in doing that. But uh, it is something that I think we will need in VR to make VR actually be a uh, be everything that it can be. Players want to, players, and I, I'm saying players, actually anybody who jumps into VR wants to be in an environment where the, the barrier to reality actually is gone. And if we're unable to do those things uh, with an NPC, if we're unable to basically make them believe in that, it, uh, it becomes tough to make them believe in anything else. And I think that that's where for us that challenge came in. And, and funnily enough, actually, it's great to hear what you're saying about how you feel about Olivia. But the funny thing is that we also went down the wrong path with her at one point where we made her more of a game character at one point, which was, uh, you know, game characters have a tendency to very much guide you through the game, but guide you in a sense where you don't feel the, how would I say, the bossiness of the character if yeah. you were in a TV game. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. You have, you have, the trap is it becomes Simon Says, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I shouldn't say TV game, I mean a TV game, basically a game that you play on a TV. Right. But yeah, it's, it is Simon Says, as you said. And funnily enough, if you do Simon Says in VR, oh my God, I mean, the reaction from players is just so extreme where they feel like, I don't like her, she's bossy, and I don't want to have her around me. Wow. And that's literally how players actually would originally see one path that we took. So we had to explore all of this to make a character that actually you want to be around. And it, it's trickier than what I think people... Would, uh, would see actually when they play the game. I, I will tell you what I first assumed when she, you know, you emerge from the pod and she's in the space station and, and talking to you at the very beginning of the game. Uh, there have been several VR games where I interact with human beings, but they are quickly shuffled off the stage. And I assumed that's what was going to happen is that she would very quickly leave and then I would be alone in the space station and doing a lot of things. And it was such a joy to stay with her and ha- interact with her throughout the game. It just felt like 
this wonderful relationship that I was developing. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I, I th- thank you. I mean, I think that uh, that one of the things that I saw some a couple of players say, and I also saw a few people actually write about it, was that she made uh, the moments in the game uh, that you experience, especially with her, no longer feel like um, just experiences and moments in any game where you would just actually watch something and be like, oh, it was a cool moment when this happened. And a lot of people actually equated it to true memories that they've had. And that was the interesting thing where they said, actually, I have memories of being with her inside this game. And that's a massive compliment to this whole team. I have to tell you, like people, people were just like overjoyed when they heard that stuff. That's great. Yeah, no, I, I, there are so many little touches in the game too, that I think speaks to the, the care and attention that your team put into it. Um, all of the little things that you can find in the space station that speak to the history of, of being there and, and, you know, the life that's being lived, all of that I felt Mm -hmm. like was, was really wonderful. And, one thing in particular that I, I found so incredible was, uh, you know, when bad stuff does happen to Jack, uh, that you can come and see your your old body frozen in space there. It, it was so jarring to me and so powerful, uh, a visual. I thought yeah. that was so neat. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool. It's like it's a, it's a moment where you kind of go like, oh, this actually could be real. <laughs> and we didn't want to break that boundary. And that, that was why we left those bodies and everything over there. It's just because... It makes you feel like actually this could happen and it could go bad and and this is how how maybe potentially life could be and I think that that's one thing that this team has always kind of looked to uh, the connection to real life even though the worlds that we create are, are, are of course fictional we always try to figure out how believable we can make things and and that was definitely one of those pieces actually that we want to keep. Yeah, I think the the entire interface is like that as well. And I wonder if you can speak to um, coming up with that. I mean, even how wonderful it is to, you know, scan something and then pull the tab out, which reveals like this information display, mm-hmm. all of that, all so ta- tactile and, and, and satisfying to do. Actually, you hit the nail on the head. It's the tactile feel. For us, most of this came from uh, you know, it wasn't the it wasn't like we had all this design, right? When we started the project. But every, all of these little design mechanics, all of this stuff about UI that we did, they all were born out of being in VR. And being in VR allows you to do things where you kind of go, all right, wow, I could have not imagined doing this because in a, in a regular game, because yeah, I, I could build the same exact thing, but it wouldn't have the same kind of uh, attachment that I would have if I was able to touch it. And definitely uh, with, the, with the scanning, as you said, even the... the the narrative actually uh, that's that's been done throughout the game. The fact that originally the narrative was go- not going to be picked the way it was, uh, it was more of like a select. Uh, very orig- originally, it was more of a, you know uh, scroll up, scroll down, and select what you want to say. And here we kind of find ourselves saying like we want to touch everything. I want I want to be able to pick what I want to say by by actually having that tactile feel even on that button. Yeah. So everything in the world actually was guided by literally the one way we brought up, which is tactile. Everything in the world had to be tactile because that's what VR actually, again, provides us compared to everything else. It's that feeling that you are there, not visually there, but that you are there by connection to the world. Well, like I said, I, you know, I absolutely love the game and I, I hope more people uh, play it because they heard this because I, I just think it, it needs to be it needs to be a huge hit. And I'm hoping there's more. I know last time we spoke, <laughs> you were teased a little bit about 
this game, uh, is there going to be more Lone Echo in, in the future? Or are you guys working on other VR concepts? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> let's see, what, what hints did I drop to a year ago? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out. But uh, here, here's what I could tell you. It, we, we, while making this game, we left a lot of things actually out there that, uh, that I know we know could work, but we also felt were just too much of an endeavor to actually achieve and, and deliver uh, in the right way. So, yeah, the team has a lot of ideas. Uh, there's a lot of ideas that came from just Lone Echo alone. There are ideas that came from being in VR that have sometimes nothing to do with Lone Echo. But uh, I think that Rad actually is, uh, is in for the long haul. We, we, we found ourselves actually after, what is it now, 14 years of, uh, of, being, of making games as a, as a studio, uh, we found ourselves actually doing something that uh, that feels very different to us even when completing the game. It felt different because we, honestly, as weird as it sounds, we didn't know what we were doing day one. <laughs> we just did. We learned everything from the ground up and and every single one of those uh, those uh, teachings was kind of almost a small wing for us as a studio and as a, as, as a dev team. So I just can't, I can only foresee that we're going to keep on trying to get some more of those wins, uh, even in the design mechanics and the other things that we haven't done in VR yet. Well, that's exciting to hear. Uh, I just hope Jack doesn't ever pick up an assault rifle. Just, uh-huh. I don't want that to happen. I just, I love the, the fact that we can have at least one of these games that isn't, isn't also a wave shooter. <laughs> I, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> I appreciate it. And thanks so much for being here again. Uh, I'm such a big fan of, uh, of Lone Echo and of Ready at Dawn. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Jeff. Thanks so much.